to Wendell's World in Sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. Play, play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. It's 108 degrees in Las Vegas, Nevada at this recording, but I'm going to be hotter than ever. Wendell's World in Sports. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Konnichiwa, wa salam alaikum. My brothers and sisters, shalom. Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Namaste. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. Coming out for those in the East Coast. Coming out for those in the West Coast. Coming out for those in Africa. Coming out for those in Spain. Coming out for those in Brazil. Coming out for those in Australia. Coming out for those in South Africa. Some Coming out for those all over the globe. Coming out for those in Pakistan. Coming out for those in Bangladesh. Everybody listening to Wendell's World in Sports, no matter what where you are, no matter what you're doing, no matter what's happening around you. I hope you are going through life with love, understanding, peace, the ability to listen, to learn, to educate yourself, to become better people, to pass it on, to pass on forgiveness, to pass on understanding, to pass on love, peace, and harmony, opportunities for all, for everybody, no matter where you're at. No matter what skin color you have, no matter what gender you are, no matter what your political affiliation is, no matter what it's all about, let's see what we can do moving this world forward, that we can add peace, unity, love, harmony, understanding, respectfulness for everybody, for everybody with a good heart, for everybody who's uh, doing the right thing in the world today. I hope everybody is doing that, doing it for your sons, doing it for your daughters, doing it for your wives, doing it for your husbands, doing it for your best friends, doing it for your families, even doing it for your enemies, doing it with love, peace, happiness, understanding, trying to bring unity to this world that we live in, or whether you're in this country or whatever, whenever, however you are listening to this podcast. Man, I got a lot of things I want to get down and discuss today. I can't get into football, man. I'm sorry for those here in the divided, racist, selfish, ignorant states of America. I can't do it, man. I can't talk about Aaron Rodgers. I can't talk about what's happening in the NFL right now because there's nothing happening in the NFL right now. I know that you know, being here in this country that you have to talk about the NFL 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You have to talk about some football, whether you're talking about the middle of summer, the middle of the spring, whatever is happening. Somehow, some way, you have to formulate some type of subject topic concerning football to talk about. Right now, there just isn't one. Right now, I can't dig myself into thinking about one. Right now, Aaron Rodgers is doing what he needs to do. There's nobody else who's been coming out yelling and screaming that he wants to be traded. I haven't heard a peep from Deshaun Watson. Russell Wilson seems to have cooled on his trade demands and his desire to possibly play football somewhere else other than in Seattle. So there's really nothing else going on. There's really nothing else in the NFL or college football that I can talk about. I don't want to talk about who's the greatest running back. I don't want to talk about the top 15 players in the NFL. I don't want to talk about if Tom Brady, the greatest quarterback of all time. I don't want to talk about the win-loss totals of teams in the NFC East. I don't want to talk about what's happening right there and understanding with all that stuff right now. Don't want to do it. Not going to do it. 
I talk about what's happening now. And what's happening now, what's taking center stage now, is the NBA playoffs. Yes, now, there is something in college athletics that came down this week that has changed the game, that has changed the way that we look at college athletics That at the end of the podcast, the last segment of the podcast that I'm going to get into, name, image, and likeness. Now, finally, it's about damn time that these student athletes, that these collegiate athletes can now go ahead and make some money off their name and likeness. It's about damn time. So I want to get into that and talk about how, you know, it's a win-win for for everybody. And really, what it also constitutes is the fact that we could be seeing a whole new era. We could be seeing a whole new spotlight shown on women's college sports. And I'm not just talking about softball and and basketball, the ones who you you turn on ESPN and you turn on all the other stations that you see the college softball World Series, you see the NCAA Women's Tournament um, on ESPN. So you see those two sports out there for the women to shine, to show their medal, to show their talents, to show their beauty, to show their intelligence on the court and everything, show their stories. Now with this image, name, and likeness, man, this could be just a boom for so many other women in so many other sports that we don't think about that um, I think is fantastic. I think now that we're starting to see, you know, a situation where women are now going to, or female college athletes are now going to start getting their piece of the pie. There's going to be some sports where they're going to have women making much more money or having much more endorsement opportunities than the males that play the same sport. So I'm excited about that to see now the fact that not just college athletes of football and basketball or the males who play football and basketball in some states, uh, you know, the wrestling team in some states and some conferences and some regions of the country, the baseball team, the lacrosse team, not only are those doors for opportunity endorsements and making money off of your name and your abilities on the court or on the field, in the arena, in the stadium, wherever, not only is that going to be open to men and the sports that we know and love, mainly football and basketball, but it's also going to be open up to so many other uh, athletes who play other sports that we might not even think about watching college athletics. So that's going to be something that I'm going to be getting into at the end of my podcast. So yeah, so it's not going to be just basketball centric the entire way. There's also going to be some other things, but as you know, man, come on, the conference final, the NBA conference finals are going on right now. And here on Wendell's World of Sports Podcast, you know, doggone well, I'm going to talk about it. The Milwaukee Bucks, one game away, one game away from the NBA finals. Now I'm recording this on a Saturday morning and game six is going to be played in, oh, let me see here, in about nine hours. So as of right now, the Bucks are leading the Atlanta Hawks in the conference championship three games to two. The game five that they play, the Milwaukee Bucks dominated the paint without superstar Giannis Adenokupo, won the game at home, 123-112 after laying an egg in game four, Atlanta playing without Trey Young, who suffered an injury, a bone bruise in game three, which knocked them out not only for game four, but also for game five. Atlanta came out aggressive. Milwaukee played this game, played game four like they had everything in the bag and they got swamped. They got beat. They got defeated. And just when they were starting to make a little bit of a comeback, the hyperextension of the knee to Giannis put an end to any hope 
that Milwaukee would make a comeback and win game four. Atlanta picked up the intensity, picked up the defense, picked up the drive to survive and thrive. And that was the end for Milwaukee in game four. Came back home for game five. Brooke Lopez led the way with a playoff career high, 33 points. 14 of 18 from the field. Seven rebounds, four block shots. When did Brooke Lopez go down to the uh, crossroads in Mississippi? The same place where Robert Johnson went to when he found out that he couldn't play the guitar well enough. So he gave his soul to the devil and came back as the greatest blues player who's ever um, laced him up and what the foundation for what we hear is music. When did Brooke Lopez all of a sudden go down to those same crossroads and sell, and sell his soul to the devil or sell his soul to Wilt Chamberlain Sell his soul to all of the great NBA centers who are right up there in heaven right now. When did Wilt Chamberlain have time up in heaven to stop banging the women to uh, come on down to the crossroads and give Brooke Lopez some of that mujo that he's got? Because in game five, Brooke Lopez looked like doggone Wilt Chamberlain, Bill Russell, George Mikan, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Patrick Ewing, Shaquille O'Neal, Moses Malone, Ardis Gilmore, Bob Lanier, Walt Bellamy, any other big man you want to name that's been excellent, David Robinson, shit. Brooke Lopez looked like he took a little piece of something from all those guys and put it on the Atlanta Hawks. 14 of 18 from the field? 33 points, 7 rebounds, 4 blocks. But Chris Middleton, 26 points, 13 rebounds, 8 assists. Jeru Holiday, 25 points, 13 assists, 6 rebounds. Had his really first good shooting night of the series. Bobby Portis, Bobby Portis, speaking about going down to the crossroads, Bobby Portis from Arkansas, formerly of the Washington Wizards, 22 points starting for Antetokounmpo. So those players combined to score all but 17 of Milwaukee's points for the game. Bootenholder, Milwaukee's head coach Mike Bootenholder, shortened up the rotation for the most part, and um, those guys put it on them. The Bucks starting five were a plus 69 in the plus-minus plus ratio. Milwaukee took control of the game, led from start to finish, immediately jumped out to a 10-2 lead with about two, two and a half minutes into the first quarter, forcing the Hawks, Nate McMillan, to call a timeout in the uh, first quarter, leading 36-22, led 65-56 uh, at the half, only because they missed 12 consecutive three-point shots. They went into the paint. Holiday was penetrating, kicking, dishing, to a rampaging Brooke Lopez who was coming down the lane a couple of times. No more Brooke Lopez trying to stretch. No more stretch five Brooke Lopez. Old school, baby. Went down in the paint. He was being guarded by someone six seven. Come on, man. You're going to try to tell me what Brooke Lopez is going to be out there shooting threes? Not this time. Not for game five. The Bucks were able to build on their lead from nine points after halftime, making it 91-78 to their advantage going into the final quarter of regulation. Throughout the game, they led by 20 points. The aggressiveness, the intensity, the passion that was shown by Bobby Portis was contagious was absolutely contagious. The Milwaukee played this game like their playoff life depended on it. And Atlanta played the game like they had house money. Atlanta played the game like, look, we must, you know, it doesn't matter. We'll get them in game seven and we'll get them in game six. So game five, let's just rest everybody for the most part as far as intensity is concerned and make sure no one gets hurt. Let's make sure that Bogdanovich doesn't exacerbate his injury anymore. And let's just try to get out of here injury-free, no matter if we lose by 10 or 100. It doesn't matter because we'll go back to Atlanta. We'll win game six in front of Chris Tucker then we'll come back for game seven and shock the world. That's the way, that was the intensity level 
that the Atlanta Hawks played against. I don't, I don't know what's happening. Are they going to anticipate that Trey Young is going to uh, come off the bench and save the day? That's the way they play. And Bogdanovich had a pretty decent game with 28 points. They also got the 19 from John Collins, Donato Gallinari, and 17 points from Sweet Lou, Lemon Pepper, uh, uh, Chicken Williams. But, you know, game five, it was all about Milwaukee. It was all about enforcing their will. It was all about not playing around. It was all about taking care of business. It was all about, all right, man, look, we're the better team. Let's go out and show why we're the better team. Let's focus on our strength. Now, Milwaukee has been a three-point shooting squad. But still, damn, man, this was a situation where you take a look at the matchups, even without Atenecupo, the man who usually preoccupies or usually is the one who mans the pain on the offensive end with his drives and with his dips and with his euro steps and with his up and numbers up, up and unders going to the basket that wasn't there for for Milwaukee but Lopez came in and took that position took that responsibility to get the ball in the paint and when you get the ball in the paint go up with some force and to score and to punish the Atlanta Hawks, and it looked like a situation where, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, the Milwaukee Bucks, speaking from basketball definition, just beat up, physically beat up the Atlanta Hawks. They were all over the offensive glass. They enforced their will, and now we're going to go to game six. What's Atlanta going to do? Now, they're going to be able to, hopefully for them, feed off that crowd and get them rip-roaring ready to go. But Milwaukee is one game away from the NBA championship, their first NBA championship appearance since, what, 1974-75, the days of Bobby Dandridge and Lou Alcindor, then known as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I'm sorry, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, then known as Lou Alcindor. We're speaking about Oscar Robertson playing that great team from the Boston Celtics of Dave Cowens and John Havlicek and, and those guys, Tommy Heinsohn at the coach. So we're speaking about a long, long drought. We're speaking of, what, over 40 years or something like that? The last time that the Milwaukee Bucks made it to the NBA championship? Now, of course, everyone related, everyone that's on this Milwaukee Bucks team right now, from the coaching staff to the players, really don't have that type of connection. And when you're speaking about you know, some type of connection from the old, I mean, this is not the we are family type of uh, team with the Milwaukee Bucks. There really is not that, there really hasn't been that type of connection, shall we say, with the old school Milwaukee Bucks. Oscar Robertson isn't going at the game. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is not wearing a deer helmet. Um, you know, Bobby Dandridge isn't out there in Deer Alley or whatever out there, laughing it up with the fans. So, you know, from the last time, that the Bucks made the NBA championship to where they are right now in the position that they are right now and in the run that they have right now. I don't see the connection from those former Buck teams or that last Buck team who made it to the championship to be connected with the run and the passion and the journey that this Milwaukee Bucks team is on. But still, man, you're right there. You are right there. You don't need to be playing for history if you're Mike Bootenholder and those guys. You don't need to be worrying about what's happening in the 1970-something. You don't need to be talking about the 40-year drought. This is for you, man. Be selfish and talk about this is for us. Chris Middleton, the second-round pick from Detroit who got traded on draft day for Milwaukee, who was, uh, excuse me, who was traded to Milwaukee on draft day. This is for him. Drew Holiday, who was set in NBA purgatory in terms of success, team success is concerned. This is for him getting to the NBA Finals. Brooke Lopez, who at one time, 
didn't even know if he would even be in this position in terms of being a starting center in an NBA team for a good team. He's one game away from getting to the NBA Finals. Bobby Portis, as I mentioned before, bouncing around team to team and really not having some success and really not having the chemistry and really not having the flow. He's mainly known in Chicago for what? Punching, uh, oh, that one guy who went back to... uh, to Europe. Oh, I forgot his name off the top of my head, but that's what he's mostly known for. Now he's in a position where he can get to the NBA Finals. Each one of these players, each one of these staff members have a unique, inter- interesting story to tell that can fuel them, that can motivate them, not just from these, you know, just from the, you know, basically something of, I'm just trying to get into the NBA Finals because I want that ring and I want that chip and I want that check. It's also just the story, the journey that these guys, from Giannis, where his beginnings were in Greece and everything that he had to go through and the long shot that he had in terms of making it to the NBA. And here he is right now after a couple of seasons of winning an MVP and then not fulfilling that desire, not fulfilling that that promise of getting to the NBA championship. Now, despite being injured, his team, and he's one game away from making it there. So it's, it's for Milwaukee. It's, it's, it's right there. And like I said, man, I, I, it, Atlanta hasn't been through that yet. Atlanta, awesome story. Nick McMillan taking over from Lloyd Pierce. Hawks starting off slowly. Then finally getting it together. McMillan actually demanding that the team play a little bit of defense. Having accountability for guys like John Collins and Trey Young. Kind to meshing kind of working, kind of evolving Trey Young's game from a guy where, you know, Trey Young, and we're speaking about this year, we're not speaking about years ago and players ago, we're speaking about this core group of Atlanta Hawks during this year really weren't happy with Trey Young and the way that he played because Trey Young dominated the ball, manipulated the ball, shot a lot of crazy-ass three-point shots. This is when Lord Pierce was the coach of the team. You know, took a lot of bad shots, wanted to be Stephen Curry Jr. in terms of trying to prove his his range from three-point. Um, really didn't give up the ball unless it was for a made assist. Really didn't make too many hockey assists in terms of passing the ball and moving the ball around and having some flow into the offense. So, I mean, there were many times. I mean, John Collins and other, others, man. I mean, they were sitting there talking about, man, I, I don't like playing with this guy. I don't like playing with Trey Young because of the way that he plays. McMillan took over for... Lloyd Pierce then came into that situation. He was already an assistant coach with the Hawks, but uh, McMillan, you know, got that head coaching position and started to turn things around, started to hold Young more accountable for what he was doing, actually got him to play a little bit better defense. He's he's never going to be Tony Allen, but I mean, at least he's trying a little bit better. And hey, let's, you know, let, let's, um, let's keep it real here. The Hawks took advantage uh, playing in a weaker Eastern Conference, got to uh, play the New York Knicks and did well that time and played the Philadelphia 76ers who had a mental and physical breakdown in the second round of the playoffs, and here they are. But when you're speaking about, you know, I don't know we should use the term who deserves it more to be in the uh, NBA or represent the Eastern Conference in the NBA Finals, Milwaukee or Atlanta, but when you take a look at the journey, when you take a look at the heartaches, when you take a look at the learning process, when you take a look at everything that it inquires, that it entails, most of the time, Phoenix will sit there and raise their hand and be like, not really, Wendell, when you're speaking about the journey to winning or being in a championship series. But most of the time, teams who make the NBA Finals, it's a journey. It's a multiple season journey. 
And it's filled with heartaches. And it's filled with disappointment. And it's filled with doubts. And it fills with it is filled with lows. And for the Milwaukee Bucks, for the last couple of years, that's what they faced. Now, what that does, and what that does if you're truly championship medal, it hardens you. You learn from that experience. You become a better basketball team. You become a better basketball player. You don't get complacent. All of a sudden now in the summers, you work that much harder. All of a sudden now, you know that going into a season that, you know, changes are going to be a coming if we don't uh, get things together and get things turned around and start living up to the expectation, team expectations that we want. Those are the type of things when we speak about why teams who win championships need to go through that grind, need to go through that history, need to go through that ups and downs and downs and lows of losing and disappointment and misery and sadness in the playoff because those are the things that build character. Those are the things that build chemistry. Those are the things that build relationship that then meld themselves into championship uh, teams. And with the Milwaukee Bucks losing four straight to Toronto after being up 2-0 two, two a couple of years ago in the, uh, West, in the Eastern Conference Finals, they weren't ready to make it to the NBA championship. They weren't ready to win an NBA championship. And even last year, losing to the Miami Heat the way they did, that team wasn't ready to be in the position that they are now to try to capture that Eastern Conference crown and be contenders for the NBA championship. Now, because of going through all of those all of those, those strifes, going through those battles, they have now got themselves in the position who were both physically and mentally there were, they're in a position to where they should be able to take that next step. Whether Trey Young plays or not, whether Giannis plays or not, I'm thinking that game six, that the Milwaukee Bucks are going to be moving on to the NBA championship. On top of, again, just the Hawks man-to-man being a better team than the Atlanta Hawks. If you're going to be having 10 guys, and of course I'm only focusing on the starters, but let's just say, for instance, for game six, Giannis and Trey Young are not going to be playing. If you had... These five starting five for Atlanta and this five for Milwaukee, and you had to choose teams in terms of uh, you know playing a five on five game in the playground. Who are you going to pick? First player you're probably going to pick is Drew Holiday. Second player you're probably going to pick is Chris Middleton. Third player you're probably going to pick might be John Collins, maybe Bogdan Bojanovic. But for the most part, you're the the Milwaukee Bucks five are going to be picked long before the Atlanta Hawks are starting five are picked. So I just think in a situation like this, not only do we have the Milwaukee Bucks being the better basketball team, but I also think because of the experience that they've had in the playoffs and with the Atlanta Hawks being neophytes in terms of their experience in the playoffs, I think that's going to come to the forefront for game six, as I mentioned before with the, brass ring of winning the Eastern Conference Championship and then making it to the NBA Finals. Just just too much for Milwaukee to uh, lay an egg or come out and play loose or come out without the intensity and fire. You know that Atlanta's going to. Atlanta got beat up. Atlanta got punked. Atlanta got bitch slapped. Game five. So just on pride alone, especially in that first quarter, especially in the first five or six minutes of that first quarter, again, Atlanta's going to come out and try to uh, knock their heads off, uh, figuratively speaking. They're going to come out with that, like a house on fire. That uh, arena is going to be hot. That arena is going to be loud. 
it would be almost unthinkable, unexcusable for Milwaukee with everything they have in front of them, knowing what they have in front of them, not to match that intensity to let them, as far as Atlanta is concerned, wear themselves out on that and then take control of the basketball game. So, hey, you know, as I mentioned before, whether Giannis plays or not, whether Trey Young plays or not, I am predicting tonight that the Milwaukee Bucks will be advancing to the NBA championship. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Just some updates on the franchise players. Giannis, despite an MRI showing no structural damage, he was scratched for the uh, game for Game 5 in Milwaukee. Head coach Mike Bootenholder said into DeCoupo did some work in the weight room and in the training area, but was not ready to play and is listed for doubtful for Game 6. I just can't believe that he plays. And Trey Young was listed as questionable and even warmed up before the game to test out the ankle before Game 5, but Young was still in a uh, good deal of pain in the hours leading up to the tip and he was sidelined for the second straight game. Head coach for the Atlanta Hawks, Nate McMillan, said that he expects Young to be a game-time decision decision for uh, the Game 6 tonight. So, who knows? Who knows what's going to be happening? Even if Trey Young does come back, how much can he give? You would think such a pivotal game for the Atlanta Hawks in terms of, man, if we can go up 3-2 and then come back on our home court with a chance to uh, close out the series, that man, if Young is, shit, if Young can give us just a little something, that he would be out there. But the fact that he couldn't do it in that pivotal game five shows me that, yeah, this bone bruise that he suffered is the real deal. It's, it's uh, something that uh, should be uh, should be concerning for the Atlanta Hawks. So we'll see what happens. Even, and I say that even with the situation of, let's just say a, a miracle happens and Atlanta wins game six and game seven. I mean, this looks like this bone bruise for Young, and it looked like when it happened, it was just like, well, you know, tape tape him up, give him some electroshocks, and, you know, give him some treatment, and he should be ready. He should be rip-roaring, ready to go. This wasn't gruesome. This wasn't the type of situation that, you know, you saw that replay, or you saw that play where Giannis got injured, and I only saw it once, and I was like, okay, don't need to see that shit anymore. But uh, you would think the person, or you would think the player, would definitely be out if you took a look at the severity of the injury when it happened in real time would be Antetokounmpo. I mean, you were the way that he was writhing in pain in game four when he got injured, you thought to yourself, oh shit, this motherfucker, man, he tore something as far as ligaments are concerned, ACL is concerned. This looks horrible. This looks terrible. You've got to be fucking kidding me. This is not a, well, you know, he's going to miss a couple of games and if he can and then Milwaukee makes it to the NBA Finals. We'll see if he can play later on in the series. No, no, no. The way that he was writhing in pain, come on, man. You can't tell me when you first saw that and when you first processed what happened, you said to yourself, this motherfucker tore his ACL. I mean, this is a situation where, damn, he's going to be missing next season. I mean, that was, for me, initially, some of the process, the process that I thought process that I was going through. Like, oh, shit, man, this guy. This guy's going to be out all of next year, man. Holy crap, bro. So thank the Lord and Jesus and Jehovah and everybody else, whoever you believe in, that, uh, uh, you know, he was walking. When you saw him walking off the court and everything, it was like, whoo, all right, thank goodness. I mean, it would suck. It would absolutely suck and so be apropos if Giannis could not go ahead and finish uh, 
the journey that Milwaukee is on right now. But for a guy who just signed a super max contract, whew, a sigh of relief in terms of, boy, as bad as it is right now in terms of the fact that he might not be able to play game six, he missed game five, and we don't know what the future holds for this playoff series with Giannis moving forward in his knee. Um, thank Jesus that it could be that, the, you know, it's only the injury that he had is just we're thinking about short term and we're not thinking about, yeah, this guy make it back for the, for next season. So, so let's, uh, <laughs> let's, uh, if you're a basketball fan, you're a Milwaukee Buck fan and, and, and very classy by Black Lana, by, um, the Atlanta Hawks fans and everything to, uh, when he got injured to give him the respect that he deserved. That was uh, that was very classy. That was very nice of you, Atlanta. It shows that not all fan bases in the NBA are the mongrels or uh, uncaring goons or ghouls. So very nice, very nice in that point. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The Western Conference. Now we speak spoke about Milwaukee. We spoke about Atlanta. Moving over now to the Western Conference Finals. It is over. And after it's all over, guess what the Phoenix Suns are doing? Don't you know I'm still standing better than I ever did? Looking like a two survivor, feeling like a little kid. I'm still standing after all this time. Thinking of the pieces of my life without you on my mind. I'm still standing. For the first time in 28 years, since the days of Thunder Dan Marley, Charles Barkley winning his only MVP, Danny Ainge, Tom Chambers, geez, who else was on that team? Kevin Johnson, oh, who else was on that team? Mark West, the Phoenix Suns are going to the NBA Finals. They clinched the Western Conference Wednesday in LA with a 130-103 victory over the fading, exhausted Undermanned Los Angeles Clippers to win the series four games to two. And after 16 years, 16 long, hard-fought years, Chris Paul, CP3, will finally play for an NBA title. One of the greatest players in NBA history to never play in the finals. That moniker for Chris Paul is no longer. That title might belong to Steve Nash or George Gervin or Dominique Wilkins or Bob Lanier or Alex English. But I know one thing, it ain't going to be for Chris Paul, who you could probably say was the greatest player of that group. No longer. And um, for game six, man, Chris was beyond fantastic against the Clips. Scored 31 of his 41 points in the second half. Tied his playoff career high at 41. Won 16 of 24 from the field. Seven of eight. The man was seven of eight from the three-point line to go along with eight assists in 35 minutes. So Paul dominated over the end of the third and fourth quarter as well. Scored 14 of Phoenix's 16 points after the Clippers closed within seven late in the third quarter, then hit a then hit three three-pointers in the final quarter quarter ball game. There it was. 
uh, by the reaction, by the cheap shot, by the bullshit, by the nonsense, by the thuggish actions of Patrick Beverly shoving Chris Paul in the back and then the technical foul with DeMarcus Cousins. It was, guess what, guys? We got him. It was the Dennis Rodman shoving Scottie Pippen into the uh, second row of the uh, of uh, the Auburn Hills type of moment where we've got him. We have got him. And while that sucks and why I want to turn around and do something in retaliation, no need. Because guess what? We won. And I've got your heart, bitch. And I've got your mind, bitch. And you are mine, bitch. Bitch. Call me daddy, bitch. So that was the thing, man. That was the thing with the Phoenix Suns. And after losing game five, Phoenix played with more energy, more force, more physicality. And as I mentioned before, just mentally wore the Clippers out. In game six, when you shooting 17 of 31 from the three-point range and only 54 to 34 edge in the paint, that means that uh, you are dominating. That means you have got the pedal to the metal and the other team can't respond, especially, as I mentioned before, when the Clippers don't have, I haven't mentioned it before, so let me mention it for the first time, the Clippers playing without one of the best players in the game, Kawhi Leonard. This time, at least, instead of sitting in the suite that he was sitting on the bench. Very nice of him. So, look, man, going into the finals, I mean, we don't know the health status of Adenokupo or Trey Young, so Phoenix should be the favorite against either Milwaukee or Atlanta in the finals, regardless of the health of Giannis or Trey Young. Even if, let's say, for instance, Milwaukee wins tonight or Game 7 and they're in the finals and Giannis comes back, you know he ain't going to be nearly 100%. So that's clearly an advantage for the Phoenix Suns, and as I mentioned before, with this bone bruise concerning Trey Young, I mean, how effective is he going to be if the Hawks can squeak out a victory? And you're also mentioning a Atlanta Hawks team who's playing without DeAndre Hunter and playing with a banged up Bogdan Bogdanovich. So Phoenix is right there. Chris Paul is right there. So we're going to have to mention this. The question is going to come up here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, and regarding the Phoenix Suns making it to the NBA final, because, you know, at first I mentioned it before in my last podcast, I mentioned how unbelievable this run has been for the Phoenix Suns. When you're speaking about, they've kind of skipped, they've kind of, let me, let me, let me even go back a little bit. Remember when I was talking about way back whenever you didn't, you'll go to uh, many of your podcasting sites, go to Spotify, iTunes, you can look up some of the archives of my show when I touched on this, but when I was speaking about the Brooklyn Nets going into the playoffs, and I was speaking about teams, the playoff teams that had chances to go all the way and this type of stuff, my main thing with the Brooklyn Nets was, Nets were, how many, they're going to try to win the championship the unconventional way. And what I meant by that with Brooklyn was they were going to try to win a championship by A, not being a really good defensive team if all the metrics and all the statistics will tell you that um, where the Brooklyn Nets were as far as defensive rating and statistics are concerned, those teams normally don't win championships. Normally, NBA teams don't win championships outscoring, trying to outscore everybody. They actually have to play some defense and the inconsistency of Brooklyn playing defense throughout the year was evident. So I thought, well, you know, how is a team that's going to basically try to score out every, uh, outscore everybody, how are they going to win a championship when that really hasn't happened for the most part in the annals of NBA history? Now, Brooklyn turned up their defense a lot and Kyrie Irving got injured, so that kind of put that to kaput. But not only 
my main concern, or not only was my thought process concerning the Brooklyn Nets, where A, they're going to try to win a championship, they were going to buck conventional wisdom on how to win the championship by trying to outscore everybody, and B, really not having any type of cohesion in terms of their main players playing together when you speak about James Harden and Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, how they only played like eight games together, and then all of a sudden these guys were going to get together into the playoffs and then win a championship. Those are two things in annals of NBA history, if you go back and look and study, that those things normally don't happen. Normally teams who win championships actually play defense, and B, they actually are... They have been playing together for a while or for a lot during the regular season uh, together, gaining that chemistry, gaining that understanding, gaining the knowledge of playing with each other, which allows them to win a championship. So that was my thing with the Brooklyn Nets. With the Phoenix Suns, my deal always was like, okay, how, how can this team, who really doesn't have any type of playoff experience with the exception of Chris Paul and Jay Crowder, when their main guy, Chris Paul is the heart and soul, the MVP and all those type of things, but really their best basketball player or all-around basketball player is Devin Booker. If we're speaking about the Phoenix Suns making it to the championship and him, and them relying on Devin Booker to be that guy, what are going to be what are the chances because he's never been, been in that situation before? Phoenix has never gone as I mentioned before with the Milwaukee Bucks. Phoenix has never gone through the playoff battles and the scars and the and and everything that they learned from those playoff losses or the, that playoff journey to finally get them to where they are. How are they going to deal with that? How are they going to uh, make it? How are they going to be successful when um, they haven't had that type of uh, experience or experienced those type of uh, battles playing in the NBA playoffs? Well, how about that? Ain't that a damn thing? Didn't really matter. The fact that for 10 years, the Phoenix Suns recently, we're speaking about 2010 to 2020, that the Phoenix Suns had been a joke of a franchise and then turning it around. I mean, they got Chris Paul. Okay. I mean, they didn't go out and get Luka. They didn't go out and form a super team. They didn't go out and, and, and get Luka, Giannis, and uh, Kawhi Leonard. I mean, they didn't go out and get Djokovic, Steph Curry, and... Uh, Kevin Durant or some shit like that. I mean, they didn't build themselves a super team. Phoenix isn't a super team. Far from it. And they're playing in a stronger conference. This is the conference of LeBron and AD and Djokovic and and, and, and Luka and Kawhi and Playoff P and Donovan Mitchell and those guys. Phoenix shouldn't be able to do what they're doing. Phoenix shouldn't have been able to be as successful to uh, get to the NBA Finals with the lack of experience that they have. But here they are. Not only that, a chance to win the NBA championship. I don't know. Unprecedented. Absolutely unprecedented if they go ahead and they do this. And as I mentioned before, I talked about the elevation of the legacy and the legend, which would be Chris Paul, not just getting to the NBA finals, but then again, going ahead and winning it. Move over, or at least, you know, move over a little bit. John Stockton and Isaiah Thomas and Allen Iverson were the best Smallman, whoever played the game of basketball, Chris Paul is now coming into the building and uh, he's going to be taking a seat at the uh, captain's table. You know, he's going to be sitting at the daddy. He's going to be sitting at the uh, head of the table if he can go ahead and pull that off. Now, here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast, your host, me being Wendell Wallace. Of course, 
I was reading something by Rod Parker. He's a columnist for Deadspin. Normally, he wrote for the Detroit Free Press, and he was on. Uh, he's been on the uh, Shannon the Skip show. He's been on Fox Sports. I think he does a podcast also with uh, Chris Boussard. Um, he wrote an uh, interesting but yet kind of bullshit uh, story, kind of low-hanging fruit uh, of column about the Phoenix Suns in terms of, you know, because of their injuries factors, because of the, the teams that they face and the injuries of their opponents, should the Suns' accomplishments be tainted or have some type of asterisks. And it said, the Phoenix Suns' finals trip reeks of high, reeks to high heaven, Let's be honest, health has played a larger role than play. And what was written in the column by Parker was, the Suns' rise has more to do with injuries, not great play in the postseason. In an NBA playoff that has resembled a mass unit more than anything else, the Suns have avoided major injuries. Paul briefly hurt his shoulder against the Lakers. And the Suns even won the two games Paul missed due to COVID protocol against the Clippers. Then he mentioned the fact against the Lakers in the first round after the Lakers won game three of the series to take a two-to-one series lead. Most believed they were not only, speaking about the Lakers, not only in control of the series, but had a clear path to a second straight trip to the NBA Finals. Then he wrote Davis, excuse me, the Lakers star power forward Dave, Anthony Davis suffered a groin strain in game four. The Lakers collapsed after that loss. After that lost the game, Davis didn't play in game five. The Lakers lost that game two and then in game six. AD attempted to play, but it was clear from the word go that he was injured and played just five and a half minutes of scoreless basketball. So basically, Rob Parker is saying that because of Anthony Davis being injured, didn't even mention the fact that LeBron James was also not near his basketball prowess because of a high ankle sprain that he was dealing with, that somehow, someway, because of that, that's the only reason why the Phoenix Suns won. The fact that after being dominated in Game 3, that if Anthony Davis didn't get hurt, that this would be looking at a five- or six-game series win for the Los Angeles Lakers. And the only reason why the Phoenix Suns moved on was because of the injury to Anthony Davis. All right, then he moves on to the second round, and he wrote that the Suns got the Denver Nuggets, who were without star guard Jamal Murray, who suffered a torn ACL in his left knee. Nikola Jokic held the team together, but the Nuggets were no match for the Suns without Murray and were swept in four games. Again, he's saying that the not saying he's not saying he's not saying outright that the Nuggets would have won the series, but what he's saying is the fact that without Jamal Murray, not even Nikola Jokic didn't he, he didn't even mention the bad back of. Michael Porter Jr. didn't mention the fact that uh, Will Barton was coming off of uh, missing 11 or 12 games and he was rusty. So he was basically focusing on the fact that the injury to Jabal Murray, which happened in the regular season, that played a major role again in the Nuggets not being able to compete fully against the Phoenix Suns. All right. Then he moves to the Western Conference. So he's saying, basically, Parker is saying that if the if Anthony Davis didn't get injured, that um, the Suns would have lost and the fact that Jamal Murray injured towards ACL meant that the Denver Nuggets were basically frauds in the second round, which makes you think, wow, how fraudulent were the Portland Trailblazers then? So now we move to the Western Conference when this article that Rob Parker wrote speaking about that the Phoenix Suns making it to the NBA Finals should be considered tainted or should have an asterisk by it because of these injuries to all of these teams that they played in the playoffs. So, moves on to the Western Conference Finals. And he wrote that the Clippers were without Kawhi Leonard, who already 
has two championships and two finals MVPs in his career. Leonard injured his knee in game four of the second round against the Utah Jazz. Winning the championship, so basically, as I mentioned before, so winning the championship would make people question whether the Suns were the best team in the NBA this season or just the healthiest when the dust cleared in on the playoffs. All right, well, I mean, (laughs) to me, it's a pretty stupid argument. I mean, if, if you really wanted to, there's very few instances at all where you can say, well, you know, the team that won the NBA championship was injury-free going up comp- going up against competition that was also injury-free. Guess what, Rob? I hate to say this, man, but just like in life, injuries, obstacles, bad luck, good luck, no luck, bad breaks, bad calls, playing in weaker conferences, all play into winning conferences. Bad officiating, whatever, all plays into winning a championship. If we want to go back and start going through the annals of history and trying to find reasons to give asterisk like you're trying to do with the Phoenix Suns, then we can, we can go ahead and do that. Now, is it, um, was it to the advantage of the Phoenix Suns that Anthony Davis got injured and LeBron James I had with, with battling an ankle injury? Yeah. Was it advantageous for the Phoenix Suns to play the Denver Nuggets without Jamal Murray? Yeah. Was it awesome? Was it uh, an advantage for the Phoenix Suns for them to play the LA Clippers without Kawhi Leonard? Yeah. But, you know, guess what? That's the way it goes, man. That's life. Too fucking bad. No asterisk there. Sorry, Kawhi, you should have gotten injured. Sorry, LeBron, you should have done better in your rehab. Sorry, AD, shit happens. That's the way it goes. Hey, Jamal Murray went down. Sucks. It's terrible. It's horrible. But that's what happens. You can point to every you can point to every team and every playoff situation where you can point and say, well, you know, if they weren't dealing with this and they weren't dealing with that, then something that you know, that's that's just the way it is, man. That's fucking life. Hello? Asterix? Tainted? We're not going to give the Phoenix Suns any credit at all for the fact that Chris Paul has been battling a multitude of injuries and yet Phoenix is still rolling through? If the Clippers would have came back and beaten the Phoenix Suns, would we have said, well, you know, yeah, well, the fact that Devin Booker broke his nose and Chris Paul missed two games because of COVID and he was dealing with a sore shoulder and he was dealing with some uh, ligament damage. Well, you know, the fact that it would really even it out the fact that the Clippers didn't have Kawhi Leonard. Shit, Paul George looked pretty healthy to me. Reggie Jackson looked pretty healthy to me. And we're speaking about Kawhi Leonard. Okay, Parker didn't even mention the fact that uh, Serge Ibaka didn't play. Why? Because Serge Ibaka got injured long enough for the Clippers to adjust to the loss of Ibaka. So it wasn't something that just happened. Like Leonard entering himself and the fact that, you know, when we're speaking about the responsibilities and we're speaking about the impact of on the team, Ibaka compared to Kawhi Leonard, no comparison. I understand that. So I don't know what we're speaking about here. Should the Lakers, I mean, did we go through this last season? Like, should this, whoever wins the, Whoever went to championship last season, didn't we already go through this argument? Should this be an asterisk? Should this be tainted because it was in a bubble and with no fans and because of COVID and that season was so wacky and all this other stuff and the time and the dates and all this thing? Didn't we already go over that? Everybody playing in the NBA are playing by the same rules. So because all of these things happen, doesn't take away from the Phoenix Suns run at all. So let's just say, for instance, then... 
if the Los Angeles Lakers go ahead and beat the Phoenix Suns, let's say Anthony Davis, uh, Mr. Parker, let's say, for instance, Anthony Davis doesn't get injured. And, of course, the according to your synopsis, that the Lakers then roll past the Phoenix Suns and make it into the second round. All right, well, they play the second round against the Denver Nuggets, who are playing without Jamal Murray, who tore his ACL. Then they go ahead and play the L.A. Clippers, who are playing without Kawhi Leonard. So should the Lakers then, should their run through the Western Conference, should then they have an asterisk, or should their conference championship be tainted if it was the Lakers who made that run? Because you could say, well, you know, in the first round, you know, Chris Paul injuring his shoulder, there you go. Then in the second round, playing without Jamal Murray with the Nuggets, there you go. And then in the third round with the Clippers, you know, you put the Lakers up against the Clippers without Kawhi Leonard with AD and LeBron, there you go. They should have made this. No big deal. This, that, and the other. I mean, are we going to, are we going to, I mean, how are we going to do this? How far are we going to go with this? You know what I'm saying? I mean, we could go back to anything. Let me, let me tell you something. In the annals of NBA history, there are no asterisks. There are no tainted titles. When the St. Louis Hawks won the championships way back in the day because Bill Russell twisted his ankle in game five, which caused him to miss, oh, sorry, game four with a series tied two to two, which caused him to miss game five in which the Hawks won. Then they came back in game six and Russell was debilitated by the ankle injury, still played, but guess what? The St. Louis Hawks still won a championship. Should we now go back into the annals of history and put an asterisk by that? Should we go ahead and, and, and do those type of things? Is the New York Knicks winning an NBA championship back in 19... Uh, shit, when did they win that championship? Back in 1972 with Willis Reed walking onto the court and barely playing. No, 72 is when the Lakers won. 1960, 1970, yeah, when the um, Knicks won the championship in 1970 with Willis Reed hobbling out. Should we even put a greater, like, ooh-ah, ooh-ah factor on the New York Knicks? So if Willis Reed went down and the Lakers won a championship with Jerry West and all of those things, would you say that Jerry West would have had one championship for real and one that was tainted because the Knicks played game six and game six without Willis Reed and then game seven with a hobbled Willis Reed? I mean, are we going to go there? Are we going to talk about that? How far are we going to go back? Should Isaiah Thomas and one of his championships have an asterisk? Because the first time they won a championship, Byron Scott and Magic Johnson had uh, torn hamstrings. So in game three and four, that they couldn't play? Should we go ahead then and put Isaiah Thomas down for, yeah, the Detroit, the bad boys, yeah, they won back-to-back, -back, but one of them was tainted because they played a team in the NBA Finals where Matt, uh, where Magic Johnson missed two and a half games, or what, uh, he was, he was, yeah, he missed two and a half games because of a torn hamstring, and Byron Scott missed the entire NBA Finals because he tore his hamstring um, during the layoff between the conference finals and the NBA finals. In fact, going into those finals, the Lakers had not lost a game. So they came into that series undefeated. And I mentioned before, Byron Scott tore his hamstring, and then uh, Magic in game two tore his hamstring. Game three, they were starting David Rivers. Game four, Magic tried to play a little bit, couldn't move, couldn't do anything. So what are we going to do here? So should the uh, Detroit Pistons have a... Uh, Asterisk by their championship? Should it be tainted or something like that? If we want to go ahead and start doing this type of shit, Mr. Parker, we can go ahead and start doing this shit, but it's bullshit and it's nonsense. Yeah, guess what? The Phoenix Suns are going to be facing a team from the Eastern Conference that's not going to have its best player. Oh, well, sucks for them. Too bad. Phoenix has always been legendary about their training staff, what they did to resurrect Grant Hill's career. They keep their players healthy. 
Should the San Antonio Spurs, should they have an asterisk because of the suspension that David Stern gave to uh, the Suns when Amari Stoudemire came off the uh, bench after Robert Ory checked Steve Young into the uh, scorer's table near the end of uh, one of those games? I mean, we want to go back and play the what-if game. We can do all that, man. We, we can go ahead and do all that. But it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any difference. Guess what? Whether I don't give a damn if the Milwaukee Bucks make it into the NBA Finals and Drew Holiday decides to retire before the Finals. Chris Middleton decides to run off from somewhere and not play in the NBA Finals. Giannis doesn't return. Brooke Lopez says, fuck it, I'm done. And Bobby Porter says, you know what? I'm boycotting because I don't like Mike Budenholzer. I'm not going to play. And the Milwaukee Bucks have to play Jeff Teague 48 minutes and Giannis's brother 48 minutes. Doesn't give a fuck. And then they have to pick up three guys from their G League team. I don't give a fuck. A championship is a championship. So for Chris Paul, it ain't going to be tainted. It ain't going to be fraudulent. It ain't going to be any of those things. So there you go, man. You know, really, here on Wendell's World of Sports Podcast with your host, Wendell Wallace, this is what I really want to end with, considering speaking about the Phoenix Suns and their rise to the championship. You You know what it really is? You know what teams should take away from the Suns' success? And really, even let's bring in the Milwaukee Bucks and the Atlanta Hawks, regardless of what happens in the Eastern Conference Finals, regardless of who loses in those, in those finals. You know, what, you know what should be an inspiration for every downtrodden, dysfunctional, middle-of-the-road, mid-major, going-nowhere-on-the-treadmill-to-success, and you're stuck in neutral and you're stuck in mediocrity. You you know what the Milwaukee Bucks and the Atlanta Hawks and more importantly, the Phoenix Suns, you know that it should inspire teams and franchises like the Orlando Magic and the Sacramento Kings and the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Indiana Pacers and the Charlotte Hornets, the Portland Trailblazers, the Detroit Pistons, the Memphis Grizzlies. Yes, I'm even going to throw in my... Washington Wizards. You know what you should take away from the Suns, fellas? That it it can be done. It can be done. You can be successful. You can be elite. You can be in conference championships. You can be in NBA championships. And God forbid, everything goes your way. You could even win one. Yes, the Orlando Magic. You don't need Penny Hardaway, Shaquille O'Neal, Dennis Scott, and um, Nick Nick Anderson in their prime to win a championship. You don't. You don't. Sacramento, you don't need Chris Webber, Vladi Divac, White Chocolate, Jason Williams, Bobby Jackson, Paige Stoyakovic. You don't need that type of talent to win a championship. Cleveland, you don't need LeBron, Kevin Love, and Kyrie Irving in their prime to win a championship. Indiana, you don't need Roy Hibbert, Paul George, and, uh, and, 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 and others to win a championship. Charlotte, you don't need, Charlotte has no, Charlotte, okay. Portland, you don't need Bill Walton and Maurice Lucas and those guys to win a championship. Detroit, you don't need the bad boys. You don't need Rip Hamilton and Chauncey Billups and Rasheed Wallace to win a championship. My Washington Wizards, you don't need, Jesus, you don't need Wes Unsell, Greg Ballard, Mitch Kupchak, Kevin Grevy, Wes Unsell? Dick Mana and Bernie Bickerstaff as your coaches to take away to win a championship. Take what the Phoenix Suns are doing, man. You don't need a LeBron James. You don't need a Kevin Durant or a super team. You don't need to go out and get 
three of the top eight or nine players in the league to win a championship. You don't need to be in a market like L.A. or New York to compete for championships. You don't have to be his historically great franchise like the Los Angeles Lakers in a market like Los Angeles, California to win a championship. Regardless of market size or the sizzle that comes from playing in that city, a Boston, a New York, a Miami, an L.A., you can still make it to the NBA Finals and beat those big market NBA executive darling teams from cities like New York or L.A. or Miami. Tell Randy Newman to stick it up his ass. I love L.A. Fuck L.A. If you're the Sacramento Kings, if you're the Washington Wizards, if you're the Indiana Pacers. You don't need the motherfucker. You don't need to be in that type of market. Oh, free agents will never go. Free agents aren't going to go to uh, Utah. Free agents aren't going to go to Indiana. Free agents aren't going to go to Sacramento. Free agents aren't going to go to Cleveland. Free agents aren't going to go to Charlotte. No, 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 okay, all right, hold on for a second. Hold on for a second. I know back in the day that Phoenix was an attractive place to go for a little bit. But that was also based on the fact of Jerry Colangelo owning the team. They had themselves a very strong organization. And for a little while, Phoenix was the place to be until black folks found out how racist that city was. But also the fact that, look, Milwaukee has been the best team in the Eastern Conference, one of the elite teams in the Eastern Conference now for the past, what, three or four years. They're not Chicago. They're not L.A. They're not New York. They're not Miami. They're not South Beach. They don't have South Beach down the street. They're not in Tinseltown. You know, they're not in... You know, they're not in the boogie down. What's up with that? How did that happen? How did Milwaukee get so good? They they didn't have the opportunity like the Philadelphia 76ers did to win the lottery multiple times and get the number one pick to get themselves a franchise player. They didn't have that opportunity. It just shows you, man. It just, the Phoenix Suns, their foundation for success, it was not generated by great players or top-notch free agents still in their prime coming to the uh, coming to the team. When Kevin Durant and all those others, when they decided to uh, join together, it was going to be in New York. No one was thinking about Phoenix, Arizona. So how in the world did that happen if you're the Phoenix Suns? How in the world did you get to be one of the dormant, dysfunctional franchises in the NBA to uh, make it to where you are now to be in the NBA Finals? Devin Booker was the number 13 pick. Chris Paul was on the back end of his career. Yeah, he did some nice work in Oklahoma City, but who would have thought that he would have had the impact that he had with Phoenix? Smart trade. Jay Crowder was a role player, is a role player, but has championship experience. He, he wasn't someone who was going to break the bank. Mikael Bridges is an emerging 3 and D player who was the late lottery pick. The only player of substance, of consequence for that team that was picked number one or was in a, you know, a high draft pick with DeAndre Ayton, who has played great. Who's played awesome. But I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the other teams that I just mentioned. I'm thinking about the Charlotte Hornets. And I'm thinking about the Washington Wizards. And the New Orleans Pelicans. And the Knicks. And the Sacramento Kings. These teams that have done nothing in terms of having real success in the playoffs. For years. For years and years and years. And I'm taking a look at these teams. And I'm thinking to myself, say for instance, me being a huge fan of my Washington Wizards, I'm thinking to myself, man, Devin Booker, who is the best player on the Phoenix Suns and who they decided they're going to build the team around, Devin Booker's great, 24 years old, an emerging star, great talent, all of those things. But I'm thinking to myself, if I'm Ted Leonis, 
owner of the Wizards. And I'm Tommy Shepard, GM of the Wizards. And I'm thinking to myself, why can't we do the same with Bradley Beal? I think Bradley Beal is a better player right now than Devin Booker. Why, why can't we build around Bradley Beal like the Phoenix Suns built around Devin Booker by doing the things that they did? That's the same thing I would be asking if I was Michael Jordan. I've got LaMelo Ball here. I've got some pretty good players in Miles Bridges. I've got a good veteran in Gordon Hayward. I've got a pretty good veteran in Terry Rozier. Why, why can't I do what the Phoenix Suns did in regards to, you know, surrounding Devin Booker with some guys who can get that team to the NBA Finals. I mean, shit, I'm in a weaker conference than the Phoenix Suns are in there also. If I'm the Wizards, if I'm the Charlotte Hornets, if I'm the New York Knicks, if I'm the Chicago Bulls, why can't I do the same thing with the uh, talent that I have? You're going to try to tell me that LaMelo Ball is not just as good as Devin Booker? Or you're going to try to tell me that the building of a championship piece LaMelo Ball isn't as strong as Devin Booker. If I'm the New York Knicks, why can't I do the same thing with Julius Randle? Why can't I build around him like the Phoenix Suns built around Devin Booker to get themselves a championship? They didn't surround Devin Booker with top flight talent in terms of super high draft picks and unbelievable free agent acquisitions. Kevin Durant wasn't interested in joining Devin Booker in Phoenix. Kyrie Irving wasn't interested in joining Devin Booker in Phoenix. Paul George and Kawhi Leonard weren't interested in going and hooking up with Devin Booker in Phoenix. DeAndre Ayton, very nice. Good pick. There we go. But Chris Paul, Jay Crowder, Dario Sarge, Cameron Payne. I mean, I mean we're, we're, we're not talking about multiple all-stars here. Frank Tomiski, Frank the Tank. He doesn't even play. But what I'm, what I'm saying is, is that you don't you don't need to have a murderous row. We always thought that you needed two to three superstars to win a championship. You would need a franchise player. You would need a great player. And then you would need an all-star to win a championship. Back in the day, that's the way it was. That's how I remembered growing up watching the game of basketball. When I was watching and growing up as a fan of the uh, Los Angeles Lakers when they played the Boston Celtics, in the uh, NBA championships, it seemed like every season in the 1980s, you would have Bird, Merritt, uh, Bird, Parrish, and McHale going up against Magic, Kareem, and James Worthy. And then you had pretty nice pieces with Boston with Danny Ainge and Dennis Johnson. And then with the Lakers, you had Byron Scott and um, Kurt Rambis. Okay, Bob McAdoo coming off the bench. But basically, it, it's not like that anymore. Phoenix is showing you that, no, 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 no. You don't, you don't need to do that. You know, okay, fantastic with Brooklyn having Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, James Harden on the team. Whoop de damn do. Are they in the NBA Finals? Well, Wendell, hey, wait a minute, man. James Harden tore his hamstring and Kyrie Irving twisted his ankle. Oh, well. Sucks for them. So if I'm the New Orleans Pelicans, man, I got me a jewel. I got me a gem in Zion. I could do the same thing. On my squad that the Phoenix Suns did with Devin Booker, couldn't I? Sacramento King has something with DeAndre or De'Aaron Fox. Couldn't I do something like De'Aaron Fox? He's just as good as, De, of, uh, as, as Devin Booker, isn't he? Can't the Chicago Bulls do the same thing with Zach Levine? Zach Levine, he's just as good as Devin Booker, isn't he? Shouldn't the Dallas Mavericks be able to do something? If I'm Luka Dantich, I'm like, wait a minute. 
How can that organization put those players around a guy like Devin Booker and make it to the NBA Finals? And I got to deal with Christoph Porzingis, an underachieving Josh Richardson, Jalen Brunson, Tim Hardaway Jr., and then the dysfunction of the management with the Dallas Mavericks. I'll get to that later. Shit. What the hell's going on? How the hell is Devin Booker making it to the NBA Finals and me, Luka Doncic, soon to be the face of this fucking league and that's still, you know, over here in Slovenia getting ready for the Olympics? That's some bullshit. If I'm Mark Cuban, I see this and I'm thinking to myself, well, this is some bullshit. Why can't we do the same thing that uh, Phoenix just did? We've got the better player to build around with Luka. Shouldn't the Denver Nuggets be doing, should be saying the same thing? If I'm the Denver Nuggets, Jamal Murray went down. Okay, Jamal Murray went down. You still have the motherfucking MVP of this league, man. You have a basketball savant, genius, great player, Nikola Jokic. Jamal Murray went down. Okay, you still have Michael Porter Jr. bat back. Okay, all right. I get all that. Jamal Murray's going to come back. You've got something, either an asset or a trade asset in Michael Porter Jr. And you've got one of the best players in the league in Jokic. You, you, you can't do what the Phoenix Suns just did. You're going to try to tell me that Devin Booker can do what he just did, but Nikola Jokic can't? You're trying to tell me that Devin Booker can do what he just did, being one of the mainstays of having the Phoenix Suns make it to the NBA Finals, but Luka Doncic can't do that with the Dallas Mavericks? What are we talking about here? Where, where, where are we going with this? I, I don't I don't understand this. So, I'm those teams, man. You got to look at yourself in the mirror. I don't, you know, get Monty Williams, we can't underestimate the great job that Monty Williams did also. So, I mean, but Monty Williams, Lakers had a chance to pick him up. It came down between the Lakers and the Phoenix Suns. Monty Williams decided to go to the uh, Phoenix Suns, and everybody was scratching their head saying, are you out of your fucking mind? Do you realize who the owner of the Phoenix Suns are? Have you seen the record? Seven coaches gone through in 10 years from 2010 to 2020? Are you going to go to that squad instead of going to a place, a historical franchise like the Los Angeles Lakers who get high price, high profile, high impact free agents just like that? And that in the best market in the NBA? What? I mean, damn, man, half of the uh, superstars in the NBA live in L.A. I mean, you're talking about recruiting. You're talking about ease of recruiting. <laughs> You just got to go down to uh, the Drew League. All you have to do is go down to see those pickup games at UCLA during the summer and talk to James and talk to Russell and talk to KD and talk to Ben and talk to Fred Van Bleet and talk to Pascal Siakam and talk to Kevin Love and talk to all those guys who what, talk to KD and talk to all those guys who make their residence in the summer out there. Some have permanent homes. Uh, Anthony Davis, he lives up in Malibu year-round. But, you know, most of the uh, great players in the NBA right now, they're all situated for the most part in L.A. You're Monty Williams, shit, y'all you know, take that Laker job, and guess where I'm going to be during the summer? Yeah, I'll be hanging out at the Drew League. Yeah, I'll be hanging out watching those guys play pickup ball at UCLA and other places. I'll be going down to Lifetime Fitness and watching those guys play uh, five-on-five against uh, the uh, gym, uh, the guys at the gym. Why not? Shit, I can recruit. I, I, I'm, I can use a, I can have a quick ride with an Uber to go start recruiting guys once I know their contracts are getting close to expiration. So, for the Phoenix Suns, congratulations. And it gives hope to uh, 
teams that I just mentioned, especially my Washington Wizards. You got Bradley Beal, man. Come on. We can do this. You can be done. Small market, medium-sized market, undesirable free agent destination market. It can be done. Teams that don't have high draft picks year after year after year, it can be done. The Atlanta Hawks, the Milwaukee Bucks, and the Phoenix Suns showed you that, yes, it can be done. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Recording this on a Saturday afternoon. Only thing on right now, watched a little Wimbledon. Watching a little baseball. Watching a little football. Not soccer, but football. I guess what, the Euro Cup or some nonsense like that. Taking a break from the Oxygen Channel where I watch all of my murder crime and justice type of shows. Oh, boy, just finished watching something. No, it was last night. Finished uh, watching something on this fucking piece of shit named John Famalamo. Uh, I've seen his crime, known about his crime story and everything for years. Cold Case Files with Bill Curtis back in the day did a story on him with uh, his murder of Denise Huber. Again, I, you know, I, I on the Pluto channel... They have cold case files, Bill Curtis. And it's like, I've probably watched every one of those shows, every one of those stories, probably watched them like five or six times. Seriously. Seriously, because when I go to Pluto, I go to cold case files, and within five minutes, within two minutes of the case, it's like, oh yeah, I remember this. This is the guy who did this, that, and the other. This is the gal that did this, did this, that, and the other, and this, that, and the other. But for me, it's just so interesting and so intriguing the way that they go through this and the crimes and the way they catch these people and the interrogations and stuff. It's just, for me, it's like I can watch it over and over and over again, year after year after year, in some cases for decades. And um, it just, I love it. I absolutely love it. If I wasn't so damn stupid and had some um, real intelligence, I would love to be a criminal profiler. But my intelligence level doesn't reach that level. But... Um, then reach that floor, but uh, I just love it. I did criminal Roy Hazelwood and John Douglas and those guys. I mean, man, they're just as much of my heroes as uh, Len Bias and Bernard King and Kirby Puckett and Dave Stewart and Roger Federer. Man, when it comes to that stuff, when it comes more to my admiration, I don't know worship. I don't worship Roger Federer. That's my guy. 
my favorite athlete going on right now, but I don't, I don't worship the guy. I just admire, I mean, admire him, admire his skill, and admire him as a person. So yeah, so you know, you're talking about Hazelwood and Douglas and these great, great, great criminal profilers, the ones who actually came up with this stuff. That stuff, yeah, man, they're on the same level of intrigue and just, just awe-inspiring worshipness as Iverson and Ewing and all those guys. So. It, uh, so yeah, the John Thamalamo. It's like you watch this shit, and it's like this motherfucker sitting on death row, and he killed Denise Huber in a violent way. And it's like again, not trying to get off too deep into the woods on this, but it's like really, man, what in the fuck is California and Gavin Newsom doing talking about putting a moratorium on the death penalty? I tell you, man. I mean, a lot of the things I'm pretty progressive on. But if you want to see me go like nut job far right on one topic, it's the death penalty. And don't give me some bullshit about this being a racist and all this kind of fucking nonsense. If you do the fucking crime, I don't give a fuck who you are. I don't care what gender you are. I don't care what race you are. You're gone. You're done. I would get rid of these motherfuckers. I would let these guys fucking suffer in prison on death row for maybe five, ten years. And then i get rid of these motherfuckers. And the way Denise Huber, the way... John Famalamo did Denise Huber would be the same way that I would execute John Famalamo. Level of them prisoners take a fucking iron you know, pipe or something like that and bash his head, bash his head in the same way that uh, he did Denise Huber. Worthless piece of fucking shit. And that motherfucker, parents are absolutely devastated. And this motherfucker still breathing air after 20-something years. Something, somebody tell me that's not right. Unbelievable, but yeah, I'm taking a break. I'm taking a break from the Oxygen Channel and the Discovery Channel and some of my crime and justice shows uh, that I see on YouTube and my serial killer documentaries and all that kind of stuff. Taking a break from all that and taking a look on sports. Even though, man, after the uh, NBA season is over, there's going to be some uh, weekends where it's going to be like crime and justice marathon. Here I come, serial killer marathons. Here I come. Going to see the Ted Bundys and the Wayne Williams and the John Wayne Gacy's and the and the uh, and those types again. Fun, 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 fun. Wendell's World of Sports. We're doing sports. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. NBA coaching changes in the league. Teams that are employing new coaches, fired and now looking, or have hired new coaches. Boston, Indiana, Dallas, Portland, New Orleans, Orlando, Milwaukee. Jesus, sorry, Fortean slip. Washington, um, some of these deals you're talking about, I know Washington right now is looking at um, Wes Unsell Jr. That would be a nice mix, knowing that his father was one of the uh, pillars of the Washington Bullets Wizards uh, basketball franchise and everything, a, a, a legend, all those type of things. His son has paid his dues. I think hiring him would be a good move for Tommy Shepard. Um, Sam Cassell has also been interviewed for that job. Orlando is still interviewing. New Orleans is still interviewing. There's a couple of teams that have already found new coaches. The Boston Celtics, Ime Udeka as their new head coach, was an NBA assistant for nine seasons with San Antonio from 2012 to 2019, Philadelphia from 2019 to 2020, and then Brooklyn last season. He served as the assistant coach when the Spurs won the championship in 2014. He was also an assistant coach for Greg Popovich and the USA basketball men's basketball team in 2018. So he's a new coach of the Boston Celtics. Brad Stevens first hire as president of basketball operations. Indiana, 
the Pacers. They hired Rick Carlisle, hired at their next head coach, four-year, $29 million. Carlisle, in his career with the Dallas Mavericks, spanning 13 seasons, had nine playoff appearances, three All-Star Europeans, one Finals appearance, and, of course, one NBA championship. Two coaching hires, though, that I want to talk about that drew some extra attention, that raised some eyebrows. It's going to be great for Indiana. You get Carlisle, who's a guy who has had some legendary type of offensive run in um, Dallas. He's going to try to bring that over to Indiana. I think Udoka is going to do very well along uh, in Boston. Let's see what he can do to uh, have the relationship that will work with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. Of course, Kimball Walker was moved this past offseason, but you have two cornerstone pieces for Yudoka to work with coming over from the San Antonio Spurs, Greg Popovich tree. Not only did he coach with them, he also played for them for a couple of seasons. So he's really been inundated in that San Antonio Spurs type of culture and system. So let's see what he brings over to help with the Boston Celtics and their move back up the charts again. Another team I was thinking about, you know, with the Phoenix Suns making it to the NBA Finals and being the Boston Celtics, you got Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. Why aren't we doing the same thing at the Phoenix Suns? Why are we not on the same level as the Milwaukee Bucks or the Atlanta Hawks? Thinking, thinking, thinking. But, you know, Yudoka, the coach of the Boston Celtics. But, again, two coaching hires that drew some extra attention. The Dallas Mavericks hiring Jason Kidd and the Portland Trailblazers hiring Chauncey Billups. Things that make you go, hmm, hmm, hmm. Now, the reason why Dallas hired Kidd, he has strong support from Mark Cuban, who just happens to be the team owner, who just happens to be the GM. What's up with these owners who has who uh, who have pro franchises in the state of Texas? Jerry Jones is the owner of the Cowboys, and he likes to control everything as far as player acquisition and being a GM and such, and there's no secret in the NBA circles, that Mark Cuban is basically the de facto GM of the Dallas Mavericks, the one who makes, who has the ultimate say on who goes where and who does what, player acquisition and those type of things. But um, so Jason Kidd has support from Mark Cuban, also has strong support from Dirk Nowitzki, who was just hired as a special advisor to the team. <clears throat> he vouched for him, of course. Nowitzki and Kidd played together when they won Nowitzki's and Dallas's only. NBA championship. He also, speaking of kids, got strong recommendations from LeBron James, Giannis Adenokupo, and Damian Lillard. The Adenokupo recommendation. Interesting. Very interesting. So if you take a look at Jason Kidd's coaching career here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast with your host, Wendell Wallace, Kidd became a head coach immediately after playing, after his playing career ended. He uh, was the coach with the uh, Brooklyn Nets, led Brooklyn to the second round of the playoffs in his debut at the coach back in 2013-14 that season. But after one season, he left the Nets to coach the Milwaukee Bucks, and the Bucks had to give up two second-round pet draft picks to lure Kidd away from the Nets. And the reason why Kidd left the Nets to go to the Milwaukee Bucks was the fact that the relationship between Kidd and general manager Billy King uh, was very acrimonious, and Kid was up there talking about, you know, what he wanted me to, he wanted me fired midway through the season, my first season, because we started off twenty uh, ten and twenty four, and then the other, and or excuse me, ten and twenty one, and then 
after the playoff victory against Toronto that season, Kidd went to next executives and was talking about, you know, why don't you give me control of basketball operations and either marginalize or get rid of Billy King. That's how, how bad it was. So JC Kidd was like, screw this. So after one season, I remember he uh, left Brooklyn and went up to uh, Milwaukee to become their head coach and have, you know, more say in player personnel and those type, those type of things, much to the chagrin of Larry Drew and John Hammond, who were the coach and GM at that time. They were like, what, really? Huh? What? Say, say, say that again. Say what? Milwaukee giving up draft picks. Uh, you know, they ain't doing that just for Jason Kidd to be coach and coach only. So in his coaching career in Milwaukee, hey, look, first year, did great. Did great. Overall, he was nine, 139 and 152. Went 44 and 38. Or excuse me, went 41 and 41 in the first season, 26 game improvement. And were the sixth seed in the Eastern Conference in the playoffs. Knocked out the um, Toronto Raptors before losing to the uh, Miami Heat. The next season, they went 33 and 49. And then after going 23 and 22 in the third year, Nets executives were like, all right, man, we're done. We are done. So they uh, pulled the plug on the coaching career in Milwaukee of Jason Kidd. Now, the. If you go back to that time and place when Kidd was the coach at Milwaukee, I mean, it was a situation where, look, I mean, the guy's smart. The guy definitely knows the game. But there's just some bullshit that comes along with Jason Kidd and his coaching style, his relationships in Milwaukee that got him fired. I mean, there was the old um, lack of personal accountability with Jason Kidd. It was always someone else's fault for the reason why they were losing. You know, he blamed the Bucks youth movement for their struggles. He was talking about, you know, I've done all that I could do. You know, I, I uh, put him here and I did this and I did that. I put him in positions to win. So don't look at me. The reason why we're losing, it ain't my fault. They're too young. They're too inexperienced. They're not listening. They don't work hard enough. So, I mean, after a while, that kind of bullshit just kind of uh, started to get on folks' nerves and sources both inside and outside the organization said that, you know, again, Kid had a tendency not only to sit there and be like, not my fault, not my fault, but then it was a situation where it was like, remember when Rick Pitino was the coach with the Boston Celtics and he was given the entire run of the mill in terms of basketball, president of basketball operations and head coach and they signed him to like a five-year, $50 million contract or some nonsense like that to, to run the whole kabang. And he was the one that brought in Chauncey Billups and then traded him halfway through the first season. And then he would trade. I mean, there was a lot of Larry Brown in both Rick Pitino and Jason Kidd in terms of these guys fall in love, in and out of love with these players very quickly. And like, yeah, I want him, I want him, I want him. Get me him, get me him. So they get him him. They get, they get him there. And then they're like, well, I don't want him anymore. Like, well, wait a minute. I mean, you were going balls to the wall to try to get this guy. We bring him over, and now you don't want him anymore? Well, I mean, what's up with this? For instance, Jason Kidd, I need Michael, Michael Carter-Williams. Give me Michael Carter-Williams. I need Michael Carter-Williams. Okay, he got Michael Carter-Williams. Then, like 15 minutes later, he's like, yeah, you know what, he can't play. Screw him. Get rid of him. Like, what? Come on, man, you're making it kind of hard for, to, uh, for us to work with each other. Then, team officials for the Bucks. I mean, you know, he would, Jason Kidd was a very demanding old school style of a coach and, uh, you know, the grinding, the negativity, the, the lack of pet on the back. I mean, you, you, you can't bark and yell and, and, uh, belittle and all those type of things. And then when the players do right, say, well, you know, why should I give you a high five or a pat on the back? That's what you're supposed to be doing. So basically by the 
end of the second year and going on to the third season, that basically, man, the, the, the Bucks were starting to tune him out. The players were starting to just kind of tune him out. He lost control of the locker room. Um, there was concern that, you know, with Giannis, you know, the situation that he was in where he came up and the development that they wanted him to do and everything, they didn't want any poison from kid and that experience and that environment to uh, fall down to Giannis. Giannis was really a guy where it was kind of like, look, you know, I'll do anything that you want me to do. And I'm the player. You're the coach. I got that. When you say jump, I say how high. I got that. I understand that. But even Giannis early on in his career was like, man, I'm getting kind of sick and tired of this guy. Getting sick and tired of the long ass practices. I'm getting sick and tired of the um, no accountability for himself. I'm getting sick and tired of everything is my fault and not your fault. I'm getting sick and tired of all of this bullshit. So uh, time for me to start tuning you out and I remember the final nail in the coffin of the Giannis Jason Kidd relationship at that time was I think Kidd recorded a message or recorded a phone call between him and Giannis where basically you know Kidd was like hey Giannis why don't you go to management and say that uh, I'm doing a great job and I'm an awesome guy and I need to be the coach forever. And if you want to give me some more power in the front office, I think that would be a good idea too. Why don't you uh, go ahead? I mean, you're the young buck that they're hitching their wagons to and making you the franchise uh, player, face of the franchise. Why don't you go ahead and you, and you do that for me? So once that was leaked, once Giannis found out that that conversation was being recorded, it was like, man, you know what, man, you got to go. You've got to go. So there's some, I don't know. I mean, that was a little while ago, kid being on the coaching staff of Frank Vogel with the Lakers for a couple of years, winning a championship as an assistant coach. Maybe he's learned. Maybe he's grown. I mean, he really didn't even have a chance to learn the nuances and what it was like to be an NBA coach when you go from playing to 15 minutes later being the head coach of a basketball team. Ask Derek Fisher how... Uh, easy or hard that is, especially when you don't have any moral fiber like um, Derek Fisher didn't have. So it's a situation with Jason Kidd, maybe now being the coach of the Dallas Mavericks, maybe now getting this opportunity, maybe he's learned, maybe he's grown, maybe he's watched and developed some new ways of how to do things. I mean, maybe he's kind of adapted a little bit better to the ways of the NBA. Damian Lillard gave him his recommendation. LeBron James gave him his recommendation. So I mean, maybe there's a situation with Luca in him that he can form a relationship that could work very well together. But uh, it's 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 gonna be it's gonna be interesting. It's really really gonna be interesting. And out of all of those things, speaking about with Jason Kidd, we still have to get to the fact that um, he does come with some baggage in terms of a history of domestic violence allegations. When you're speaking about Jason Kidd. He was arrested in 2001, pleaded guilty to spousal abuse for hitting his ex-wife, Jemana, who later filed a lawsuit in 2007, alleging consistent physical and emotional abuse, as well as adultery. Um, he was suspended two games in 2013 after pleading guilty to driving while impaired after steering his car into a utility pole in New York after a game when he was playing with the Knicks in 2012. Nice little story about uh, Jason Kidd. When I was doing um, when I was doing radio back in Phoenix, and one of my sponsors was Babe's Cabaret over on uh, twenty one twenty nine Scottsdale Road or some nonsense like that. I used to go in there, you know, just to uh, say hello to my uh, sponsors. Yeah, but there was a girl 
a dancer there who I was just completely enamored with. I forgot her name. Don't even remember. Probably wouldn't remember. Wouldn't remember her now if she came walking in this door and gave me a lap dance. But um, I remember I would go over there basically to see her. And I remember this girl uh, had both David Boston and Jason Kidd like, like, how you do, what's happening, what's going on. It's like, all right, so I'm fighting for the affection of a female who's uh, got Jason, who's got, who's caught the attention of Jason Kidd and David Boston. Uh, I've got no chance. Not that I had a chance to begin with, but uh, it was like, wow, okay. I remember <clears throat> he was there visiting her, story has it. And Jemana came walking into the club looking for him. So Jason Kidd ran into the men's bathroom while Jemana was up there searching around looking for her husband. But uh, yeah, interesting stuff going on with the uh, with, with that type of stuff. So yeah, the, the, so we have issues with Jason Kidd bringing some baggage of uh, spousal abuse and other things. And you got to remember, man, he's going to be hired by an organization that's coming off an investigation that uncovered sexual misconduct that took place for over 20 years, and you're going to hire a guy who was convicted in 2001 of spousal abuse? Interesting. Interesting. Jason Kidd is going to be walking into a team that was teetering on, what, dysfunction? Best way I could put it, not just this season, but this past offseason. You had the Mavericks and general manager Donnie Nelson mutually parting ways after a decade plus of uh, a working relationship, Luca was very fond of Donnie Nelson. Donnie Nelson was the one who discovered Luca at 14 and uh, followed him and forged a relationship with him. So not only is Jason Kidd walking into this situation where, you know, he's going to have to formulate that relationship with Luca. The problem with the Dallas Mavericks is they have this shadow GM. The GM without having any type of qualifications or experience at the job. Hannibalus Vulgaris. I know his last name is Vulgaris. Can't pronounce his first name, but his last name is Vulgaris. He's formerly a professional sports gambler. He was brought into the Mavericks organization as the director of quantitative research and development in 2018. And since then, it's been rumored that he's been making a bulk of the organization's decisions behind the scenes. So it's kind of like he's kind of cut the balls off uh, Rick Carlisle and uh, Donnie Nelson this past season to where, you know, there'd be games where, you know, Luca would actually be calling him out during the game. Like, oh, who made that fucking decision? You were Vulgaris. I mean, that type of shit, you know. Oh, who's making the starting lineup today, Rick? Is it going to be you or is it going to be Vulgaris? A 21, 22-year-old talking to a coach of that statue who won, in, who won a championship like that? Not good. Not good. And it's been rumored that uh, Dantich dislikes Vulgaris as a general manager. No shit. So according to a story in The Athletic, players on the Mavericks, including Dantich, have, preferred, have referred to their pseudo-general manager Vulgar Vulgaris as difficult to talk to and going as far as setting the starting lineups for Rick Carlisle. This is what Jason Kidd is going to be stepping into out of all the other shit that he brings. And how is he going to deal with Luca? How is he going to deal with all of this? Luca ain't shy about expressing his opinions on the court to the players, to the coaches. Some of the bullshit that he did with uh, Rick Carlisle, something tells me that shit ain't going to be working with Jason Kidd. Uh-uh, man, you ain't going to be able to talk with the disrespect 
to Jason Kidd that you did with Rick Carlisle. I don't give a damn if you didn't like when he called a timeout, when he didn't call a timeout, the substitute patterns and everything like that. Rick Carlisle might have been able to take that shit. And Rick Carlisle is a strong-willed character too. I mean, he's no he's no bitch. He's not uh, anything like that. He's not going to back down. As Ray John Rondo, after a couple of other Mavericks, uh, former Mavericks, who have been on the bad side of Rick Carlisle. Well, Rick Carlisle is far, far from being a wallflower. And you're going to have Luka Doncic talk to him like that? Jason Kidd ain't going to put up with that nonsense. Jason Kidd ain't going to put up with all that bullshit. So how will these two strong-willed, stubborn, alpha male personalities get along the first time that Luka tried that bullshit with Jason Kidd? If he does it, Luka ain't afraid to embarrass you in front of people. And Jason Kidd ain't going to take that shit. So what is it going to be like when Lucas starts doing that shit and Jason Kidd says, uh-uh, young man, let me fucking tell you something. What kind of spectacle is that going to be? And how disruptive is that going to be for the team and the team itself? I don't know. I don't know. But it was a strange hire. Jamal, was it, uh, Jamal Mosley, I think that was the name, who was the assistant coach for the Mavericks. He was the one that many people thought was going to be able to get the job because of his close relationship with not just Doncic, but also other players on that team. He's been the defensive coordinator for the Mavericks and another guy who is ready to become a head coach. So, you know, how is all of this going to work? It'll be interesting to find out. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. The other coaching move that raised a few hours, that raised a few eyebrows and made you say, hmm, that's really interesting, is the Portland Trailblazers hiring Chauncey Billups as their coach. Deal is for five years. As we know, Billups works as an assistant for Ty Lue staff with the Los Angeles Clippers this past season. It's been reported that Billups has been a positive influence on Paul George and Reggie Jackson, two of the Clippers that have been the leaders on their deep playoff run so far this year. So everywhere Chauncey Billups goes, he ultimately has the respect, instantly has the respect of the players. Um, you know, has been the coaching material, has been looking to get into coaching for a while. But Billups also brings some baggage in terms of being accused of sexual assault during his rookie year in the league. 1997, a woman alleged that Billups, along with former teammate Ron Mercer, and another assaulted uh, this woman. Criminal charges were not filed, although the medical report suggests that uh, this woman was telling the truth in terms of being sexually assaulted. Billups and Mercer would go on to settle a civil suit with their accuser in 2000. Another instance or example of, yeah, would look good. So the Blazers used as much of the search process to revisit the allegations from Billups' rookie season in the NBA. And he was like, man, go ahead. You go ahead and do this. I'm cool with that. You check this out. Any questions that you want to know, I'm open. I'm not trying to hide anything. And because of that, once the Trailblazers did their search and used their search firm to go ahead and do this, that they found out there was really nothing wrong. So we went ahead and they made the hire. Now, this was a time when Chauncey Billups was like 21 years old. We're speaking about an incident that happened 24 years ago. I'm not trying to excuse it. I'm not trying to minimize it. I'm not trying to justify it. All I'm trying to say is that, yes, he made a mistake. Everything was... Um, put the closure on this a little while ago. This was brought up. This was investigated. People have gotten jobs. People have gotten employment for doing much worse. 
I mean, how we're losing our mind over Chauncey Billups and we just four years ago elected a piece of shit motherfucker who likes to grab women by the pussy and get away with it because he's a celebrity, a so-called celebrity, a pseudo-celebrity. And we're going to give old Ben out of shape because of uh, Chauncey Billups becoming a basketball coach when when 74 million Americans were fucking stupid enough to, re, to try to reelect the idiot that was in the uh, White House four years before. I don't think so. So I, I don't really understand the, I can't believe that this is horrible. What made it bad for the Trailblazers, though, what made the backlash even harsh is that the press conference to introduce Billups as the head coach, that they wouldn't address the issue in terms of, hey, I mean, what methods did you use? What firm did you use? What things did you do to make sure that uh, what happened in 1997 won't happen again in 2021 and beyond with Chauncey Billups? Number one, they could have said, well, I mean, number one, Chauncey Billups was a young kid back then, and now he's a grown man. There hasn't been any other instances concerning Chauncey Billups in this matter of sexual assault or doing anything like that in since that uh, since that time the alleged incident took place. So what are we talking about here? But, you know, the GM, Neil O'Shea, was talking about, no, no, we went through through the proper channels. We did our homework. We did our background. We did this. We did that. And that's all we're going to get into. And Billups was like, well, you know, the the, the, the situation, it was moving. It changed me and this, that, and the other. I'm not looking for, I'm not looking for Chauncey Billups to relive relitigate that that night or that thing that happened. I don't need for those guys to get into any type of details. It's over. Let's move on. And also, let's also think about this. But with both both Billups and Jason Kidd, if he can get the maximum amount of expectations out of the team, if Kidd can get Luka past the first round and second round in the NBA playoffs, if the if Chauncey Billups can get the Portland Trailblazers past the second round and c- cement the relationship that Damian Lillard ha- has with the organization, with the city and everything, none of this stuff for the most part is going to matter. None of this stuff is really going to matter. So we can kind of get through this storm if you're Jason Kidd, if you're Chauncey Billups. The battle line is, are you going to be able to coach? And if you're going to be able to coach and you can bring success to your franchises, then the fan base, for the most part, is really not going to care. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be be with you. Another opportunity was missed, though, by the Trailblazers as making some noise that's getting them a little bit of hard water. Missed an opportunity to make a historic coaching hire. San Antonio Spurs assistant coach Becky Hammond also met with uh, the owner and O'Shea in Seattle about the job of head coach of the Portland Trailblazers. Jill Allen, the owner of the team, really liked her, but you know Portland reached out for intel and background from San Antonio about uh, Hammond, and the reports came back that she didn't have a strong skill set for the various day-to-day aspects of coaching and coaching responsibilities, and that sentiment has been echoed by sources around the league. So we're speaking about now a situation where women are all up in arms because it's like, well, I mean, how serious were you about hiring Hammond and to an extent Don Staley, who interviewed uh, both for the Portland and the Orlando coaching position? How serious were you about even having them as contenders for the head coaching positions? How in the world can you have hired a guy with 
you know, 1997, what he did sexually assault. How could Dallas hire somebody like Jason Kidd who has some baggage in terms of a sexual assault? How in the world can you go ahead and hire those guys and, you know, kind of jerk around Becky Hammond and Dawn Staley? Are you just doing this as far as, you know, good PR? Hey, we're a progressive type of uh, outfit and organization. We're hiring women. We're taking a look at hiring women as for their head coaching positions. Are you real about that or are you just bullshitting? So... That was the other thing that uh, that was the other thing that uh, people were talking about in terms of uh, the both the Trailblazers and the uh, Trailblazers and and the uh, Dallas Mavericks getting in hot water for. But uh, as I mentioned before, man, just win, baby, just win, and all of this other stuff won't mean a thing. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Last segment of the program. Hope everybody is doing great. Hope everybody is doing fantastic. Talking about what's happening in the world of sports. Talk about Talked about uh, the, the NBA. Talked about some coaching changes. As I mentioned before, man. Look, I mean, with Rick... Um, with uh, Jason Kidd with the Dallas Mavericks. With Chauncey Billups with the Portland Trailblazers. Just win. Just win, and everything will be all right. Especially if you're talking about Portland, how as much as that community loves the Trailblazers, just win. And I'm not trying to absolve. I'm not trying to minimize. I'm not trying to disrespect um, the situation with Chauncey Billups in 1997, but it was 1997. And I wasn't privy. I don't have all of the evidence. I don't have all of the information regarding what Chauncey Billups did uh, in terms of what he was accused of, but... Chauncey Billups has more than made up for the mistake that he made in 1997 in terms of the sexual assault charge. If you're going to let him back into the league, if you're going to let him go ahead and be an assistant coach and let him do all these things, I mean, eventually he's going to be a head coach. And the situation with, you know, Becky Hammond, Chauncey Billups, Becky Hammond, which one would you prefer? Which one do you want? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not an evaluator of who would make a better head coach or who what um, um, quality to make a head coach in terms of Becky Hammond and Chauncey Billups. Chauncey Billups played the game of basketball. Chauncey Billups has a connection with the players. Chauncey Billups seems to have good communication skills, can work well with the star players. Chauncey Billups has the knowledge, has, was a point guard in the NBA for many years. So Chauncey Billups has the aptitude. Chauncey Billups has the intelligence. Chauncey Billups has the playing experience. Chauncey Billups has a lot of things going for him that Becky Hammond doesn't have. So we have to be careful, just like, you know, when sometimes when black folks don't get a job and we're saying racism, 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 first, second, and third, the reason why he didn't get this job before 
we start throwing that out. Let's do a little bit more background. I'm not saying that all of the situations scream that it's not racism. I'm not saying that all of the situations where a black man does not get a head coaching job, whether it be in the NBA or in the NFL, that it's all about racism, where it's all about the race or the color of the skin. But before we start throwing that out there, let's start doing some homework and seeing if that's the situation and taking a look at the particulars involved in terms of making the decision, in terms of who the coaching is and and all those type of things. But if you're to the point to where you think everything is about racism, then you can go ahead and make the evidence or you can make the argument that uh, it's based on race and that's the only thing and if you're not then you can also do the same thing so there you go Wendell's World in Sports I'm your host Wendell Wallace so glad that you could be with us moving the end of the program the last segment of the podcast major major changes are happening in college athletics this is not your grandfather's godmother's great uncle's mom and dad brothers and sisters old prom date one night stand from the other night college sports type of situation. College sports, NCAA, all of this nonsense will never be the same again. Because for the first time, all NCAA athletes are now able to make money from a wide variety of business ventures without losing their eligibility. A mixture of state laws and NCAA rule changes have removed prevented, is removed, I'm going to get this in a second here, have removed or provisions and that prevented athletes from selling the rights to their names, images, and likenesses, which is the NIL. The college athletes are already starting to take advantage at this new legislation. For instance, Florida State quarterback McKenzie Milton and Miami quarterback De'Ara King have signed on as co-founders of Greenfield's company, a business built to help athletes pursue speaking events, public appearances, and other new opportunities. Milton and King will also promote the tech-based platform. They also plan to be among the first collegiate athletes to create non-fungal tokens to sell to fans in the near future. I have no idea what that means, but as long as they're making money for it, go for it. Auburn quarterback Bo Nix announced an endorsement with Milo Sweet Tea shortly after midnight on his Instagram account. Razuna, a restaurant chain based in Lincoln, Nebraska, announced Wednesday that it plans to offer a flat fee to the first 100 Nebraska-based college athletes who promote the company's reward program on their social media feeds. Five members of the Jackson State football team, Jackson State, HBCUs, who desperately need money, who desperately need something in terms of some notoriety and some type of uh, revenue streams, Five members of the Jackson State football team signed an endorsement deal. Audrey Miller, C.J. Holmes, Tony Gray, Antoine Owens, and Warren Newman III signed a deal with Three Kings Grooming Products. Owens was in New York City to officially sign his contract at midnight Thursday. Fantastic. I love this. Absolutely love it. And it's about time. And for all of these folks who are sitting there talking about it, it's going to be chaos. And let's let's kind of get all this stuff straight when we're speaking about these universities or these coaches or these athletic directors or these adults who are wringing their hands or having sleepless nights and all of these types of things thinking about the chaos that could be unleashed if we have a situation where these players have a little bit more, a lot more control of what they're doing and have the ability to make money off their name, image, and likeness. 
for all of these coaches who are up there wringing their hands and up here sweating and trying to, you know, make these arguments against it because it's going to be for the betterment of the, it's going to be the betterment of the student athlete if, you know, you put your hands in the, or you put your careers and put your decision making in the hands of the adults, namely them. It's all about control. It's all about trying to uh, maintain the control that they have. That's one of the things about college coaches compared to the pro coaches. You know, in the pros, you're dealing with men. In college, you're dealing with kids. So you have a lot more control. You have a lot more say. You have a lot more king to the kingdomness in college than you do in the pros. You think, for instance, Mike Krzyzewski in college, Jay Wright and all these guys who are running these high-powered collegiate basketball programs, Tom Izzo, Bill Self and stuff. Those guys, you know, the, the, those guys run that thing. Those guys, when they say jump, the students or the athletes need to say how high. Because here, they're in control of their scholarship. The players are putting their careers in their hands to make sure that they can reach the NBA as quickly as possible and be as ready as possible for the NBA. So they're in control of a lot of these things. And the pros, man, you know, nobody, nobody's up there going to be controlling Luka Doncic. Nobody's going to be out there controlling LeBron James. Nobody's going to be out there controlling Devin Booker. Nobody's going to be out there controlling these guys. These guys are men. These guys are grown men. And especially when you're speaking about high-profile players, the best players on their team, they are the ones that control what's happening, not the coaches. Steve Nash ain't going to tell Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving or James Harden what to do. Mike Malone ain't going to tell Nikola Jokic what to do. As we found out, Rick Carlisle ain't going to tell Luka Doncic what to do. And Luka be like, oh, okay, coach, no problem. That ain't happening. That ain't going down. Frank Vogel ain't going to be telling LeBron James what he can and can't do. Tyron Lue ain't going to be telling Kawhi Leonard what he can and can't do. And that, 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 that shit ain't happening. That shit ain't going down. In the college ranks, though, you get to have that nonsense especially when you're talking about football. So this is one of the reasons why these coaches in college are like, no, 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 you know, that's not right. I'm kind of concerned about this, this, that, and the other. Not because in the college, these coaches don't have to deal with agents. These coaches don't have to deal with representatives. These coaches don't have to deal with uh, lawyers and other type of things that these pro coaches have to deal with. These pro coaches... They have to deal with lockouts. These pro coaches have to deal with trade requests. These pro coaches have to deal with those type of things. In college, you don't. In college, Nick Saban is the end-all, the be-all in that program. Not just in the program, not just on campus, but the entire goddamn state and probably the region. The same thing with Ryan Day. The same thing with a lot of with Dabo Sweeney. The, thing, the same thing with a lot of these coaches, with, with um, uh, Bob Stoops and uh, now Lincoln Riley. I mean, they are. The uh, head honcho. They are the HNIC in, uh, when it comes to these type of things. Even though, you know, Nick Saban and Dabo Sweeney, those guys, they ain't ends. But what I'm saying is, is that you know, they're, the, they're the main ones in charge. So, you know, I, I can understand losing a little bit of control would not be something that they would look forward to, man. But sorry, it's happening. And I think it's fantastic. I'm going to love it on a recruiting trip when there's going to be a five-star recruit that Alabama is going to be recruiting and someone who they're really going to want for that football program. And they're going to say, yeah, I'll come to your uh, campus. We'll go ahead and maybe set up something in terms of an official visit. Here, talk to my, talk to my agent. Talk to my lawyer because you know, I ain't coming there for free. I'm not going to be going on this recruiting trip for free. 
because I've got Auburn, I've got Florida, I've got Pittsburgh, and I've got Ohio State uh, lined up where they're going to be giving me X amount of money. How much? How badly do you want me on this team, Coach? So there we go. So every, everything is going to have to be adjusted. I, I love it. I absolutely love it. Now, instead of the uh, parents that's going to be badgering you and bothering you, now it's going to be an actual agent that's going to be calling up saying, why isn't uh, my client getting more time? Why is my client not starting? Why is my client being uh, put on the bench? Why didn't my client get more time? Why didn't my client get more touches? Why isn't my time, uh, client get, get receiving the ball? Why are you running the football more than passing the ball when my client has the uh, ability to be you know, throwing the ball 40 to 50 times a game? It's going to be interesting. It's going to be fantastic. It's going to be nice. Roy Williams of North Carolina, Mike Krzyzewski of Duke, they saw the handwriting on the wall. Some of these old cats, man, who've been, you know, college basketball coaches, and they say, hey, see how the transfer portal is going. And we see now the fact that these guys can transfer and it's not going to affect their eligibility. They see what's happening there as just the tip of the iceberg. They think that you're going to be, you, you think those guys, those old timers, those old schoolers are going to be down with name, image, and likeness and everything that's going to bring as far as the players being able to uh, basically be brands while they're in college. Uh, these guys who grew up in that system before, the generations before, who coaches who are now in their 70s and 60s, they ain't long for this. How long do you think Tom Izzo is going to be around for this? Now, there's always been speculation that Bill Self has always had an interest in the NBA. Now, how quickly do you think that interest is going to be perked? It's going to be resonated when he's going to be, have to be dealing with this shit for a couple of more years. So it'll be interesting. John Calabari, there were rumors this summer that he would be open to a NBA head coaching job. These guys who, who you know, used to run their program the way they wanted to do it and this, that, and the other, those, those days are going are coming to an end. And now the players are starting to get more power and become more empowered to do things. And uh, I love it. I absolutely positively love it. So it's going to be great for everybody. It's going to be great for the fact that, hey, you know what? We take a look at college football and we take a look at the domination, which is circulated among a handful of teams, which circulated around an Alabama or a Clemson or an Oklahoma or an Ohio State. And that's about it. We speak about, you know, the fairness, and we speak about college football having the best uh, regular season of them all because of the fact that every game is supposed to be an elimination game and every team has an opportunity. No, they don't. You take a look at what's going on right now. You take a look at what's happening. Now with this name, image, and likeness, I'm not saying that these elite college football teams are going to fall off the map. I'm not saying that all of a sudden now because of name, image, and likeness that, that Georgia Tech or Virginia Tech is going to all of a sudden usurp Clemson as the beast of the ACC, that all of a sudden Mississippi, Mississippi State, and Tennessee are going to be at the same level as in Alabama. But damn, at least it gives them a, 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 another avenue, at least it gives them another chance, at least it gives them another weapon that they can use to where, you know what? I'm talking to this five-star recruit. Instead of going to Alabama where you're going to have to wait two years before you even get a chance to see the field, you can come to our school, you can start as a freshman, and oh, by the way, starting as a freshman for Tennessee, we've got this sponsor, that sponsor, and these sponsors who can, that uh, are going to be interested in your services, and you can, you know, negotiate a contract where you can be making X amount of dollars right off the bat. And when you speak about these players who come from disadvantaged homes, 
or poverty-stricken areas, I mean, it's fantastic. It gives them an excellent, excellent opportunity. So, yeah, is this rule meaning that in college basketball that all of a sudden now Kansas and Kentucky are going to fall off the map? And all of a sudden now, you know, in the ACC, the fact that a Clemson all of a sudden is going to be, you know, getting five-star recruits over Duke, we don't know what... Krzyzewski leaving at the end of the this upcoming season, what that's going to mean for Duke. But if Calipari stays on at Kentucky, all of a sudden now, don't don't worry about it. With Alabama, with um, with you know, with, uh, with uh, Bruce Pearl at Auburn, and the uh, program that's ascending in basketball at Alabama, there'll be threats for Kentucky. But because of this rule, Mississippi and Mississippi State aren't. There's still going to be Mississippi and Mississippi State. And believe you me, the way those communities are in terms of Tuscaloosa and Gainesville and Norman and Columbus and Clemson, South Carolina, you, you think those guys are going to sit back idly by and say, oh, well, name, image, and likeness. Oh, well, I guess now we're going to have to give up a little bit of the uh, cachet and power that we have. Shit. <laughs> I mean, you know. Let me tell you something, Texas and those types of football programs, they still have big time money boosters and they still have a love for the sport that you can't find anywhere else. So yes, it's still going to be a dream. It's still going to be uh, very advantageous for guys to go to Alabama if you want to play football, if you want to uh, be an NFL player. The elites of the elite are still going to be elite, but at least with this rule, it gives other teams a better chance of, in a couple of years, maybe formulating a team and dealing with a team, especially in basketball, where you know, the one and done is going to be so prevalent. There's speak about, uh, you know, in a couple of years that it's just going to be the one and done or you have to go to college or you have to stay out of, uh, you have to be 19 before you go to the NBA draft or all this type of stuff that that's going to be gone. So you'll be able to have high school guys go straight from, high school to the NBA, especially with name, image, and likeness with college basketball. Now you're going to have situations where, hey, man, a lot of these guys go to the NBA. A lot of these guys declare for the NBA draft. A lot of them probably say that, you know what, I probably won't make an NBA team. But you know what? At least I can go to the G League and make some money. And if I can't go to the G League and make some money, then I can go overseas and play. There's plenty of pro leagues around the world where I can go. There's a lot of uh, leagues over in Europe. There's leagues in Australia. There's leagues all over the world where I can go and make some money. I mean, from the position that I'm in right now, going to school and just going on scholarship, that's just not enough right now. I need to make some money. Now, with this name, image, and likeness, a lot of these guys who put themselves, make themselves eligible for the draft for financial reasons, well, if they're a really good college player, and if you're playing at a school where the community loves its college basketball team, i.e. Lexington, Kentucky, or Bloomington, Indiana, and such, then you'll be able to go ahead and say, I don't need to go and play in the G League or play overseas because I can make just as much money from the endorsements I can get from this region or this city or this town or this community or this college town that I'm in now. I can make just as much or more money doing this for another two to three years than I could if I went over to, um, I don't know, China or somewhere else and play basketball. So another great thing about the name, image, and likeness rule that's been put down. The fact that, yeah, you know, if Kentucky 
And these Blue Bloods, if they still want to go ahead and redo and recruit their one and dones while the league, while the um, one and done rule is still there, if Kentucky still wants to go that route, then okay, guess what? These teams who are building and bringing in three and four star recruits, and those guys are sticking around because of name, image, and likeness, and they're comfortable, and they get into their system, and they're playing with their team, and they're gelling with their guys, and they're building with their guys, and they're growing with their guys, and the chemistry is growing year by year with the guys. By the time these guys are seniors or juniors in college, in that recruiting class of five or six, most of them are still with the team, then all of a sudden that team is going to be able to compete with a Kentucky class who might bring in a number one recruiting class for that next season, but not have all of them be one of the generational type players or one and done lottery picks. So it's, it's great for everybody. And for Kentucky, who brings in these guys who think they're going to be one and done, and then they get their butthole hurt, and then they get their feelings hurt because they figure out they're not as good as they thought they were, they can still make the money. They can still earn a living. They can still make enough money in college to say, you know what, I still want to uh, stay and work on my basketball skills and take advantage of the university, take advantage of the beautiful women that are on campus, take advantage of the parties, take advantage of the basketball community, take advantage of the fan, take advantage of the atmosphere. And also, you won't have their hanger-ons, they won't have their parents, they won't have their guardians, they won't have the adults outside talking about, you need to go, you need to get, you know, you need to leave this program and leave this coach, you ain't doing your right, you need to go to the league and make some money, or it's about time that, you know, you leave this place and go to the uh, league and make some money. So all of those things, I think, are going to be great in terms of the name, image, and likeness. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Here's another thing, and this might be the best thing about um, college basketball or the name, image, and likeness. I spoke about, you know, these college guys who won't have to forfeit um, going, uh, you know, get re, uh, giving up their eligibility. And I'm just thinking to myself, man, if this rule was in place for the past couple of years, how much money do you think a guy like Luca Garza or Trevor Lawrence or Jared Butler or Travis Etienne or Corey Kispert out there in Gonzaga or Justin Fields or Colin Gillespie of Villanova, Mac Jones, um, let me see who else, Brock Purdy, Sam Ellinger. I mean, how much money do you think those guys could have made? How much money do you think Sam Ellinger being the starter for Texas over the last three or four years, how much money do you think he could have made? During this career, Texas, how much money do you think Justin Fields at Ohio State for a couple of years could have made at uh, Ohio State? Trevor Lawrence at Clemson, Luca Garza, who was beloved by the Iowa community, the center for uh, the Iowa basketball team. How much money do you think? How much endorsement potential? How many endorsements, local endorsements, do you think that he could have gotten in terms of uh, the money? And how much easier could have been for him staying? Uh, with the uh, Iowa Hawkeyes playing basketball like he did for four years. And then you go even back even further and you think about guys like Baker Mayfield and Tim Tebow and Adam Morrison and Grant Hill and Bobby Hurley and Danny Werfel and all these other guys who are local legends and not just in that town, but also among SEC, ACC, Big East communities and uh, in that region. Good Lord, how much money those guys, how much money do you think Tim Tebow could have made? Stay in 
four years. Christian Leitner staying four years. These guys who stayed four years. These guys who weren't good enough to translate to making big money in the NBA through endorsements of brands and stuff. Man, how much money do you think those guys would have made if they stayed four years in college? And they still had, or they did stay four years in college, but if they had that rule during that time. Woo! Man, Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Name, image, and likeness. Mentioned before at the beginning concerning this. Female athletes are now going to have their shot. Female athletes now have many avenues to promote their sports, to bring their sports out to the masses, to introduce their sports, to get it out there. Because now, with this name, image, and likeness, you're going to be seeing a lot more collegiate female athletes be able to go ahead and do endorsements and get the opportunity to shine and put the spotlight on them a lot more than male athletes. I think that's going to be the case um, moving forward. I think this helps women athletics more than men's athletics. And as far as the female athlete is concerned, I think on the whole, I think they're going to be much, many more opportunities for female athletes than male athletes, especially when you're speaking about the sports, the collegiate sports that, you know, me and you really don't think about. When you're speaking about lacrosse and swimming and gymnastics, cheerleading, um, track and field, those type of things, softball, tennis, in those sports, I bet you that women who play those sports, the women student athletes, female student athletes who play those sports, I bet you they're going to be getting a lot more endorsement opportunities than the males who play those sports. Interesting, this was a study conducted last year by the website Athletic Director U and the marketing firm Navigate Research. They said of the 25 collegiate athletes with the greatest endorsement potential, 13 were women with annual endorsement potential between 466,000 and 633,000. Damn. Let's put it this way, man. And men, we know this. Women know this too. But women have something in abundance that men don't, that make them just as much or more valuable to advertising partners, man. You know what it is, fellas? Women got that sex appeal, man. Women got that. Women got us right where they want them, man. They've, 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 they've got more things to keep us in check. They got more things to keep us drooling. They got more things. Men do more stupid things for women based on their sex appeal, based on what we crave, based on what we get horny with, based on all of those type of things. Women got it. And advertisers are going to, ca- are going to uh, capitalize on that. Women can capitalize on their beauty more than their athletic feats more than males. Let me tell you something, man. There ain't going to be an 11th man. Everybody talks about this name, image, and likeness. Let's, let's be for real for a second. The guys who are really going to be making some money or the folks who are really going to be uh, taking advantage of this, yeah, they're going to be the stars and they're going to be the faces and the places and the people that we talk about, the names that are going to be on the sports talk show, the people that are going to be on Sports Center, all that type of stuff, the All-Americans, the great pro prospects. Yeah, those men are going to be able to make some money. Those male college athletes are going to be able to make some money through endorsements, through uh, their social media, through all of those type of things. No doubt about it. But I'm telling you right now, 
There's going to be no 11th man on a college basketball team that's going to be making bank, that's going to be making money. There's going to be no third-string offensive guard from a mediocre football team that's going to be making any type of money. There's going to be no middle-of-the-road relief pitcher on a baseball team in college that's going to be making any money. There's going to be no male lacrosse player who doesn't play or isn't receiving any type of playing time that's going to be getting any advertising offers or any type of uh, thing to do endorsements. Guarantee it. And that's going to be the majority. Those males are not going to be able to uh, cash in the way that we think when we first hear about name, image, and likeness. If you can't perform, if you're not doing things on the court, if you're not putting up numbers, if you're not uh, playing and doing those type of things, sorry males, y'all ain't going to be getting too many opportunities to be doing any type of advertising. Be happy with maybe a situation where you can take advantage of a free meal here and there and be happy that you're going to be on the football, baseball, basketball, swimming, lacrosse team, track and field team. Hey, congratulations, fellas. But unless you're a star in those sports, you will not be getting any type of real endorsement deals. That's males. Females who are attractive, advertisers do not care. You could be a walk-on sitting at the end of the bench for a bad team in college basketball if you're a female. And if you look good, and if you're fine, if you're very attractive, oh yeah, an advertiser can you you use you. If you're not getting any time for the softball team, or if you're not playing any on the lacrosse team, or you ain't one of the main track stars, and you're a female and you're attractive, oh, don't worry about that. An advertiser's gonna find you. You'll be getting some endorsement deals. You won't be breaking the bank. Oh, <laughs> but if you look good, if you're attractive. All advertisers can use you. Mm-hmm. Everybody, anybody heard of modeling opportunities now that could be offered because of uh, name, image, and likeness? Oh, yeah. You don't need to. If you're, come on, males, we know this. When it comes to females, and if they look good, and we can see them, and they're going to be on a poster, or you can see them you know, as part of the calendar girls or something like that, do y'all really care how many points she's averaging? Do y'all care how what her batting average is? Do y'all care how many goals she scores, how many goals that she stopped? Do y'all really care about that? No, as long as they have them in something that's scantily clad or something that makes them look sexy, that's fine. Males can't do that. <laughs> you know, a freshman who's only averaging two points a game, he ain't going to be getting the same opportunities as a female who's looking good in the same position. Bottling opportunities for female athletes, mm, just right there. So let's even talk about the cheerleaders now. I mean, you could be a cheerleader, right? What's stopping cheerleaders from uh, from uh, getting these type of opportunities and these type of endorsement deals? You know, women college ath- athletes from sports like um, softball, soccer, gymnastics, lacrosse, swimming, cheerleading, volleyball, golf. You better believe they're going to be getting more endorsement opportunities than the males who play the same sport at their university ship. I bet you a really attractive female soccer player who might be average, a little bit below average, she's going to be getting more opportunities for endorsement than the best male player playing soccer. I take a look at this um, these, these twins, Hannah and Haley Cavender. You ever heard of them? Twin sisters? Very attractive pretty girls 
who play for the Fresno State basketball team. They have their own YouTube channel. It has over 60,000, 67,000 subscribers. They do uh, vlogs, videos, and their videos, I think, garner somewhere between like 24,000. I think they had 24,000 in a week or two. Some of them, after a year, this got close to a million. You don't think they're going to be making bank? These are two very pretty girls. On Wednesday, they flew to New York to sign their first major endorsement deal. There's now spokeswomen for Boost Mobile with plans to promote the wireless telecommunications company in a variety of ways in the coming year. Anybody heard of Fresno State basketball? Anybody heard of Hannah and Cavender? I'm sorry, Hannah and Haley Cavender? Have you ever heard of them? Do you even know who they are? If they walk down the street and walk past you, would you would you know who they are? Do you know anything about Fresno State female basketball? But you know they signed a deal, and they've also been working with tech company uh, Icon Source uh, and other opportunities. They've announced a partnership with Six Star Pro Nutrition and plan to look into more potential deals in the upcoming days. They also plan to monetize their uh, social media feeds and start selling branded merchandise in the near future. <laughs> I mean, come on now. And I don't know. I have no idea. I've never heard of these girls before. I've never seen them play. I don't know if they can play or not. I don't know anything as far as their statistics. I don't know what impact they have on Fresno State. Fresno State making the female NCAA tournament. If they're a elite basketball program, who fucking cares? Because he's advertised to look at them. They're two very attractive young ladies with pretty good personalities. That's good enough. Whether they're averaging 24 points a game or getting 24 seconds a game, and that's about it. Who cares? They're, they've got good energy, they got good karma, and they're good looking. So there you go. That's all we need. Other female athletes who could take advantage of uh, the, nas- the uh, name, image, and likeness. Look up at Kayla Simmons, volleyball player for Marshall. She's a very attractive young lady. Uh, this girl who plays softball for Tulsa, Tajia Ellison. Very pretty girl. Uh, Jackie Prober, softball player for UCLA. Uh, Avery Williams, a Carson Newman soccer player. You don't need to uh, be a superstar. You don't need to be playing for the big girls. You don't need to be playing for the major college campuses to uh, take advantage of this stuff. And it's right here for them. So God bless them, man. God bless them. You go ahead and you make that money, ladies. And you go ahead and you do what you need to do to promote your sport and hopefully... This will be the start of something because if you get these females who can go out here and do this and not only introduce themselves and their beauty to the sport, but also their uh, knowledge and their intelligence and their charisma and everything, then, hey, you know what? That helps everybody. That moves the society. That moves uh, this world into a better place. If these females with the reason to walk through the door to even have somebody knock on the door and answer because of their beauty. But once they're inside that door, once they get that opportunity, then along with their beauty, they can showcase and show, show off their intelligence also and their personalities and such. That's not only going to be just great for women's sports, but it's going to be great for women's sports and great for women in general. It's going to make this world a much better place to be moving forward. So yes, NIL name, image, and likeness. It's about damn time. All right, I'm out of here. I'm done. 
time for me to get some sleep because in a couple of hours, we've got the Milwaukee Bucks and the Atlanta Hawks. I'd like to thank you for listening to my podcast. Special dedication going out for everybody who listened to this podcast. Special dedication to the love that I lost, Felicia Ham. Hope all is well. Hope all is good. I'm going to leave you today. I'm going to leave you today with a little Ivy Joe Hunter. Because I was speaking to a female and I told her that she's leaving me for another. Our love has come to an end. She's telling me, love, oh love, we can still be friends. Remember me, the one who heard your cries, reached out and dried your eyes. Remember me, the one who found you, wrapped all my love around you when you were all alone and all your tears were gone. When you had nothing but a tear-stained face, I let you in. Now your broken wings are mended and your need for me has ended. You say you wanted to be free? You want to fly away from me? When you were lost and yesterday I gave you my tomorrow, now you're leaving me with sorrow and you're telling me you're sorry, but sorry is a sorry word after all the love I gave to you. Sorry is a sorry love, a sorry word. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. Enough of me talking about it. Let me bring in my man Ivy Joe Hunter to kind of sing it, sing it for you. Sorry is a sorry word. It won't end, it won't mend my broken heart. Want to have peace, unity, and love for everybody. So uh, that's what it's all about. Ivy Joe, not the Temptations version. I'm going with the man who actually wrote the song and gave it to the Temptations to sing. So Ivy Joe, if you would please knock it out the box. Peace, music. You're leaving for a long-